Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Godfather, starring Marlon Brando, Al Pacino, James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Diane Keaton. Based on The Godfather by Mario Puzo, screenplay by Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola, and directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Welcome back to Rise Smile Films. It's time to start a new cast, a cast built all around a trilogy. Maybe the most critically acclaimed trilogy of all time. Mm -hmm. How many top 10 lists is... Maybe not the third one, but one and two. Like these films are constantly showing up on every list of best movies ever, best characters, best lines, best genre films. It's this Godfather trilogy. I don't know about you. I, I'm I'm slightly intimidated to actually be covering uh, these films. It's a it's a lot of material to to get into. Yeah, the first one's two fifty five. I think mm-hmm. we'll probably covering nine plus hours of footage here. Because um, I'm assuming we will do the third, and we're going to do the the director's cut. So yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. We're not going to even get close to touching on all of it. Is this a movie for you that each time you watch it, you find something new and different to think about? Absolutely. Yeah, I think so too. Now that you know, you certainly get more comfortable with the story, the more you're exposed to it. Mm-hmm. There were two or three things that I picked up on a couple characters in this that I hadn't really considered before that I think it's going to be fun to talk about today. But as far as the imit- intimidation piece goes, yeah, how can you not be? Mm-hmm. And if we don't do it properly, we're probably going to have to leave the, get the, uh, leave the cannolis <laughs> or leave the gun and get the cannoli. Yeah, well, Cole Menzel will come after us. Uh, you know, I, exactly. Yeah, just the sheer content of the story itself and not even like thinking about the performances and then all just the behind the scenes of how this film got made. I mean, there's so much stuff to cover, but I'm up for the challenge. I think you are too. So I want to ask you a question because you said you started jumping into the offer this week, the mm-hmm. show on Paramount Plus. Yeah. Per production and getting this to principal photography and then across the finish line post editing to screening. Yeah. What do you think is a bigger achievement time considered? Okay. The Godfather trilogy or the Lord of the Rings. And I don't mean all that Hobbit bullshit. I just mean Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah. Or was that four? I guess that's four, right? No, is it three? It's three. Yeah. Yeah, They didn't cut it ended. Yeah. So which one of those do you think is a more monumental undertaking? It might be the Lord of the Rings only because technology will save that story for the night, but they made them all at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's New Line taking a gamble on what if it's a bomb and we're just three films in the hole. Like the, this one, they took one at a time, but the epic quality of, of these ones, and I can't wait to talk about that, just how scenes are set up and they settle into themselves. Like mm-hmm. there's a whole vibe being presented in this trilogy that I can really appreciate, but this had to have been monumental but you know for Coppola too I mean and then he, he finishes this and goes right into apocalypse now <laughs> pretty good run there I got, just I want to share one thing because I don't know if this will come up later in the episode but I'm also watching on Disney plus light and magic mm. it's this new documentary they put on it's about industrial light and magic and how they were created and George Lucas essentially self-funded this startup company to create visual effects that couldn't be made by different houses Something in the 70s, man, people were just willing, like, I made enough profits on American Graffiti. I'm willing to, like, take out a second mortgage and two loans and all my earnings to start up this company. Mm. The risk, right? Mm-hmm. And then Coppola later would just, his entire uh, winery estate, the Coppola estate, American Zotrope, he would put that all on the line because they ran out of money on Apocalypse Now. And he's like, I'll fund this myself. 
God, who would do that? <laughs> Great question. Yeah. Um, Maybe that's just the mentality of these types of filmmakers, right? This new Hollywood roguish, uh, these filmmakers of this era, like kind of had that quality to them. There's a transition that's happening too. Gosh, this is all even pre-flight. We're in for a long episode today. Buddy. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, we like that period, like 65, maybe 67 to like mid-70s. This is where things in that latter part of that period we like start to get a little bit more grounded in less anti-hero fiction and more epic-based fiction. Uh, And this movie had a lot to do with it, but this is, I think, starting to return back to a more normal, although highly produced and well-delivered version of the Bogdanovich last picture show that we had spent a decade with. This movie is as important as that film is. I think Mm -hmm. it's a very important film. This in its own right, I think does the same thing because it takes that grainy post hippie pre Vietnam weird area that we're in. And when you take this and kind of smash the deer hunter in around the same time, what you're getting is a more cinematic version of the stuff that we had seen for about the last seven years. Is that fair? Yeah. And I think because this film takes place in the forties, it has that kind of classic Hollywood vibe to it as as well. It's a really good transition. Good point. Uh, excellent new bottle today. Uh, this is thanks to you. This is Rowan's Creek, Kentucky bourbon whiskey made from the Willett company. I don't think we've had anything from this lineage of, of bourbon. So here's to you. Cheers to you. I definitely get vanilla. Do you get that? I get vanilla. I got smoke a, on the long smoke on the back. I get a little Oak in there too. It's smooth at first. And then it kind of lingers a little bit, right? Very kind of stays with you for a little bit. We could have done wine for this one, but I don't think you and I are really much of a wine drinker. We are <laughs> so, not. These people, man, drinking wine left and right in this film. When I bought this bottle last night, I was talking to a guy in the liquor alley, and yeah. he was, we were at Total Wine. Yeah. And he was asking me, oh, we just started, I love whiskey, and he's just kind of a newbie with it. And I really like this and this and that, and I really like this to mix with my Jack, and I love my 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 Coke, and uh, not like cocaine, but like tell yeah. me like how he mixed it. He, and I just really love whiskey. What do you like to mix it with? And I was just listening to this guy celebrate sort of that. And I'm like, well, um, the air. He like laughed. He said, what do you mean the air? I said, I just, I kind of take it neat. What mm-hmm. does neat mean? I said, just no ice. No, not even on the rocks. Yeah. I said, no, just pretty much just what the, the, the liquor itself. And he kind of like looked at me like I was crazy. And he's, well, I'm only 26 and I just started this. So maybe I'll get there. And I said, or maybe not. Like if you like to get... Drink what you like. That's what I told him. Yeah. Drink what you like. Drink what you like. We used to be there. I mean, that's yeah. kind of how we started. I mean, it was just like a Jack and Coke mixer and we, we, we'd sit yeah. down and do some writing. And I'll never forget the, the first time here, you like, we had a variety that day. Like, you're like, Jesse, we're going to do a flight before we write today. And you had like four <laughs> or five whiskeys. Hammered. Yeah, he did a thing. And then so he did the the five the five things. And I don't think I, I tasted them properly because I think we should, we shot them. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, that one's pretty good. This one's good. And then we did... A gentleman Jack and Coke after that. Man, I was just, I remember very vividly, just sort of just sloshed writing. The writing was really good that day, I think. <laughs> no hangups that day. Uh, let's dive right into our flight question.
okay, talking about some of those lists that the Godfather might find itself on, one of the, I don't know if you remember them doing this, but the American Film Institute, this is how I always knew it was summer. Every June on CBS, they would do a special and it was a countdown with a bunch of talking heads on the top 100 movies of all time, heroes and villains, musicals, uh, thrillers, comedies. They did one every summer and I think they stopped in 2008 and I, I, I don't know why, but I always loved watching those countdowns, but the big one is the top 100 films of all time. The Godfather coming in, I think at number three in the original ranking and then at number two in the amended 10 year anniversary. Do you want to rattle off one through 10? Yeah. Let me rattle off one through 10 and then I'll give you the question. So 10 to one, we have the wizard of Oz at 10 vertigo at nine Schindler's list at eight Lawrence Frabia at seven gone with the wind at six sing in the rain at five raging bull at four Casablanca at three, The Godfather at two, and the unanimous number one in both lists was Citizen Kane. So my question to you, Matt, I mean, we could make quite the argument that Godfather probably maybe deserves to be number one on, on this this list, and maybe even the next film next week could mm-hmm. be number one. Yep. Uh, it comes in at 24 on the the admitted list is at 24, yeah, Godfather 2. It's a little too low, I think. Uh, just, uh, just spitball in there, but yeah. there's your top 10. Take one out that doesn't need to uh, be in that top 10 and then add one in that isn't in the top 10 that deserves to be in there. Let's do the ones we want to take out first. So before we do that, because this lends itself to, I think, some controversy, Mm -hmm. let's recognize that there are thousands, I'm not going to say hundreds of thousands, but there are thousands of potential films that could come into discussion on this. And just because something gets bumped out of a top 10 spot and maybe moved to like where I might say 35, mm-hmm. that is glowingly high praise. Oh, and yeah. not to slight anything, because what I'm going to say, I think is going to make people pissed. Or maybe not. And maybe that's the nature of these top 10. And I think part of this list is created for these type of discussions. Yeah, they're all subjective, yeah. I mean, if, if I'm going to argue X should be out and Y should be in and X is probably in like the mid-20s, that is an, a, that's an amazing achievement with all. Let me emphasize the word all. Yeah. Because honestly, Jesse, on this list, there's a couple of things in there that are bullshit. There's some movie from like 1917. There's a movie on there called The General. Mm-hmm. Bullshit. Like I, Swing time. Bullshit. Yeah. Like I get that they were important at the moment, but for me on this list, mm-hmm. one of the things that's really important Certainly construction story, but his rewatchability. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. That's a huge, huge one for me. Be my top benefactor or factor uh, into, yeah. into the list. How many times can I go back to this film? Okay, so do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? You you go first. What are we taking off first? So not to slight this film. Okay. Because I actually really like this film. Okay. Um, you know, you're probably thinking I'm gonna take Lawrence of Arabia and I will okay. argue, but that's not what I'm gonna choose. Yeah. I'm going at number one. Citizen Kane. I love Citizen Kane. Yeah. I do. It's beautiful. Orson Welles for like one of maybe three times in his career kind of is under control and produces something that's good. The acting is terrific. But if I compare that in the rewatchability scale with the one that I'm about to give you, and I'm arguing this should be at number one, what I would do Mm -hmm. is I'd probably bump this at four and move one, two, and three up. And this would be four. Okay. Moving Raging Bull to five. Maybe if that stays. Um, then that's a huge part of it. I just, if, if Citizen Kane were to come on and the movie that I'm going to tell you were to come on and I had to make a choice, it's not even close, which of the two that I would choose. So I guess I'm going guns blazing and this was close for me 
Because the other one that I was really hardly, hardly debating with myself on is Casablanca. Yeah. I, I also love that movie. Mm-hmm. But everything that that movie does, I are to me, Notorious does better. Yeah. Okay, so my hot take is I'm going Guz Blazing at number one. That's awesome. Citizen Kane's out. Okay. Okay, you want to do yours now? Uh, Where would you put it? Would like Probably like mid-20s. Okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, mid-20s. That's a, and, and you know what? If you think about all of the thousands of films that might be in this discussion, mm-hmm. mid-20s is a remarkable achievement. Oh, yeah. Remarkable achievement. Yeah. I think just getting on the list is a, an achievement in itself. As you stated, thousands of films up for for pos, a possible yeah. role on this list. Great choice. Uh, it's bold. It's risky. I love it. Uh, <laughs> makes me want to do Citizen Kane uh, one of these days. Which we I'm should, sure, actually. sure we will. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was easy for me. This was, uh, you know, there was a lot of things in there that I could, you know, I like Raging Bull, but I think I like Goodfellas as a Scorsese entry if we're including any Scorsese. Agreed. And if we're including boxing, I'd probably put Rocky before Raging Bull. Agreed. Uh, I love Vertigo's inclusion on this. Uh, I do like Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, uh, Singing in the Rain, good. Top 30. Uh, maybe. It, maybe in the 30s or the 40s. This was easy, easy for me. It's Gone with the Wind at number six. Out of this top 10, I'm going to put that maybe in the 50s. Uh, it's just, it's one of those films, I think of any of like the glorified classics, I think it's the one that's obviously aged the worst, but it's not a, a, a terribly rewatchable movie. I just rewatched it recently. And you got to watch that thing in like four sittings because that thing's pushing four hours there. And you know, the Scarlett O'Hara will just over the moon with, freaking Ashley Wilkes, the whole freaking movie. It gets old after like hour, hour and a half of, of just her yammering and whatnot. Oh yeah. I think the civil war backdrop is really cool. And on a production and costume design level, uh, it's in, impressive, but I think a lot of films have done the Epic way better. have done the war film better. Uh, it's just, that's one that is always talked about in very high regard. And it's never been in, in my in my estimation. So number six, or I say number five, Gone with the Wind, it's out. It's in the 50s now. Um, What's your Clark, favorite Clark Gable flick? Probably it happened one night. That's what I would say too. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, his his charisma is off the charts in Gone with the Wind, by the way. He's the best part about that movie. But yeah, I think... Everyone wanted him to be Rhett Butler, and th- mm-hmm. that movie was kind of very much like The Godfather. Like, when are they going to make that movie? And it was kind of like a media sensation, and of course it made a kajillion dollars. Mm-hmm. But I've never held, held it in high regard. I think same year, Wizard of Oz is instantly more iconic than anything Gone with the Wind brings to the table. I agree with that, too. Yeah. Everybody watches Gone with or uh, Wizard of Oz, right? It's yeah. like a rite of passage. Yeah. That's at 10. Yeah. You know what number 11 is, by the way? Uh, Searchers. Yeah. I don't know if that should be that high either. I know that that's also, oh my, that movie, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not his best film. Yeah, I know it's the one that everyone says is his best film. It's not. I would keep it on this list, though. Sure. Yeah. But not, I mean, 11, Jesse? Then you look at a lot of films that I really high, hold in high regard, like Alien is probably like in the 30s, you know, something like The French Connection, The Exorcist. The Exorcist probably isn't even it's on It's not even on the list. list. Yeah. I looked through 100. It didn't even make the list. Exactly. Nor did The French Connection. Exactly. So... Okay, we've taken some out of the top 10. What are we putting in there instead? What are you going with? That number four, you said. Yeah, something that um, has the 
main star of today's film in it. And that is culturally relevant and ballsy and addressed a contemporary issue at the height of the power that basically blackballed the director from a career in Hollywood. It's, and it's not even close. Like this might be number one for me. And then when you get to rewatchability, this wins versus Citizen Kane 101. And it's on the waterfront. That movie, and we have to do that someday too, mm-hmm. yeah. based around the Red Scare in Hollywood and the way that Kazan wouldn't squeal, squeal versus did squeal and what that did to him and what that did to his career and the aggressive nature that people were pursued by the anti-communist forces that thought through, although they were several of those directors meeting in communist meetings post hours, you know, post shooting hours, that is a truly ballsy movie. And if you don't give a rip about any of that, which is fair, then you get an amazing story with four or five performances that I would argue are comparable to today's film. This movie would actually be my number one movie on this list. Yeah. This, on the waterfront, Eva Marie Saint's first appearance in film. She's good in that. Brando in what I think is his second best performance, not after this. Mm -hmm. Lee J. Cobb, the best villain that never got to play too many villains. Yeah. And, you know, he he shows up again in this list, I think around 30 with 12 Angry Men. He's on here again. Um, That movie is perfect. It's shot grainy. It feels waterfronty. It feels gritty. The movie's cold because it's black and white like it should be. There's a whole conversation about brotherhood and selling each other out. And it's a true masterpiece that has been, I think, in a lot of ways. And if you look at how decorated that film is, it was really close to being one, one in the big five. Yeah. But because of Kazan, the controversies, yeah, and his choices around the Hollywood Eight and what he chose to do and not do, and whether he was a fink or not, and Kazan's a piece of shit in some regards. I'll, I'll say that also, mm-hmm. but that doesn't take away from how amazing that film is. Yeah, everything clicking on all cylinders, yep. like like today's film, like today's film. Yeah, great choice. Thanks. I kind of thought you would go a few different directions, but that's that's a great addition to AFI's top 10. Did we do that film when you were in my class? Uh, I don't think we did, no. Yeah, it's but I have, seen, I have seen it since, but awesome. My choice here, there seems to be, you know, I, I appreciate, you know, classic cinema, classic film, and kind of what's been included in the top 10 as being important. But there is a significant lack of, like, commercial film, right? Like, popular film and i don't know if that's just the stigma of like we can't have like a blockbuster in our top 10 because it's cinema right yeah but of any of the the top 100 and it is on the list it's at number 66 but you Mm. can make the case it's at number 10 it's one of my five perfect films infinitely rewatchable uh effects wise it's classic filmmaking it's it's just that blockbuster era that just really clicked into something arguably one of the greatest heroic performances of all time. I, it's, I gotta add Raiders to... I'll put it at number 10, actually. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. If I'm putting any Spielberg, you know, I I understand the importance of something like Schindler's List and Jaws and E.T., which is are all higher. All on, in the top 20. All three of those are top 20 films. Uh, all higher than uh, uh, in Spielberg's filmography. But his best film, in my estimation, is that one. Uh, that's old school, classic Hollywood, much mm-hmm. like this film, that era 30s, it has that sensibility with the blockbuster mentality. 
you can't tell me that film's not entertaining as hell that you can just sit and watch that every day if you had to mm-hmm. and just be thoroughly entertained. And it's just, everything just clicks. The visuals, the score, the acting, the story is just perfection. Mm-hmm. I got I got to add that to the top 10. It, it seems, if you look up some lists now with Spielberg's filmographies and the rank, every movie that he's ever done, you see Raiders inching a little more closer to the top in most of those lists now. I think it's unanimously it's like schindler's list jaws and raiders but Mm -hmm. raiders has always been number one for me and i i bumped that ahead of star wars honestly i think star wars is at 13 presently mm -hmm. um yeah how can that not be in the top 10 yeah it's just i think it's that commercial ability right it's just like it's too popular to include in the top 10 but i don't know if that should stop it if it's a good movie i mean let's let's include it see except when it gets to something like and this is a fine film too and i agree that it should be in the top 10 Except when it comes to like the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. And then the commerciability of that seems to matter mm-hmm. a ton. Yeah. Um, it's again, you want to sit down and say, I want to see what your ranking system was and how did you vote and all of those things. And, you know, you'll never get that. But that's what makes these lists fun. Sure. Yeah. I would actually argue, and do you have the list handy? Yeah. Rattle off 11 through 20. And I think you can make a stronger case for those films being in totality better than the top 10. Cause I know psychos in there. Star Wars is in there. There's a bunch of really, I think waterfront 16 in there. What, can you rattle that off? Yeah. 11 city lights, 12, the searchers, yep. 13 star Wars, 14 psycho. I would bump that in the top 10, 15, 2001, a space odyssey, Oof. 16 sunset Boulevard. I probably have maybe double indemnity and some like it hot above that one. As would I the 17, the graduate could make the case. Yep. 18, about it. 18, the general that's Buster Keaton. Not, nah, not for me. 19 on the waterfront and 20. It's a wonderful life. I could also make the case for that one as well. If I have to sit down and choose a selection of 10 films to watch, mm-hmm. I would, and that includes 2001 space Odyssey. And you know that I hate that film. Yeah. I would rather watch 11 through 20 than I would one through 10. Yeah, I think I would too. But one through 10 does have the crowning achievement, which is our film today. And it's bandied back and forth a little bit, but this has at times been number one on that list. Mm -hmm. What's weird about this though. And again, we'll get to this obviously next week when we do the second film, there's a raging debate between all Godfather fans about which is better one or two. If this is three, Mm -hmm. how does number two come in at 24? I know. Yeah. What did those ballots look like for this voting thing? And who was voting? Was it directors and actors or is it just people at the fi campus (laughs) right put this together i have no idea because if this is three then that's got to be four and that movie's way better than raging bull yeah oh yeah we'll see we'll talk we'll talk about it next week as well but great list i love your additions and subtractions thank you we got a ton to talk about so let's dive headfirst right into our review breakdown of the godfather the main character is a guy just like me why uh, you know i wouldn't even have to act just be myself. Godfather, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You can act like a man! What's the matter with you? Is this how you turn down a Hollywood Pinocchio that uh, cries like a woman? <laughs> what can I do? What can I do? What is that nonsense? Ridiculous. You spend time with your family? Sure I do. Good. Because a man that doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. Mm. You look terrible. 
Let's start with the beginning, the, the opening title, Mario Puzo's The Godfather, with that great little Godfather waltz. The, the imagery of The Godfather with a hand with like a marionetted puppet string over the last few letters. What does that kind of mean to you in the gist of this story? Well, it's who's going to pull the strings. And I guess as the title visually would tell you, mm-hmm. whoever's controlling that marionette contraption mm-hmm. is the crux of our movie. Yeah. That's the true conflict of this film. And you get mm, three three kind of four in a way but you get three looks at it mm-hmm. and we can we'll, we'll look into each one of those dons as the as the show progresses today but that's what it says to me and it's also black on white mm-hmm. real simple yeah not a lot of fanfare other than this strange sort of marionette image above it uh it's you know i love your halloween poster it's as perfect as it gets mm-hmm. that one's just as perfect yeah yeah the the puppet master right mm-hmm. he who controls all strings in this this mafia world is all powerful, all in charge. And I think we get that in the very first scene, I believe in America. And this is a story about immigrants, this story about the American dream. And we're not going to quite get the back story this week, but next week we'll get the full shebang. But you kind of see what Don Vito Corleone, Marlon Brando, the type of life and world he's built, not only for himself, but for his family. And I think I'll stress the word family because we spend here in this opening 30 minutes. 33 minutes. At a wedding establishing oh, yeah. Yeah. everything. Yep. All the players, the, the dynamic, the importance, all, all these little things. And again, it's it's this story of how someone with so little was able to come here and make so much. And then as this story continues and into next week and the week after it slowly starts to crumble and fall and fall apart. I mean, this is a Greek tragedy, if anything, mm-hmm. uh, in the vein of like Shakespeare. We start out really strong here, I think, with this wedding and learning the, the dynamic of power here. Don Vito has so much, so much respect that everyone pays to him. And then in uh, the Italian mafia world, here on the day of your daughter's wedding, you have to grant requests, right? And... You can ask for whatever you so desire. Maybe I just want a great bowl of pasta, mm-hmm. but then the time will come when I'll call on you to do a service for me. Mm-hmm. Quid, quid pro quo, right? That first guy that says that he would like Don to kill the... Oh, God, he's telling a harrowing story. <laughs> men who got his daughter drunk and beat her up. Yeah. There's a an undercurrent of threat, even in the fielding of that request that Don hears. When, when Vito says, what did I ever do to have you disrespect me like this? Because the guy says, I'll pay you. Mm-hmm. And to Don Vito, money really doesn't matter. It's more about the respect and the honoring of traditions. That is why this is even happening to begin with. Sicilian tradition is you have to grant all these requests on your daughter's mm-hmm. wedding day. I guess good fortune and male heirs or I don't exactly know. But that's that's the tradition. Yeah. This guy comes in, and as Vito, Don Vito tells him, what you're asking for is far beyond what they gave her. She's not dead. 
we're not murdering. He tells him, you know, he tells, uh, I think it's Sonny or is it Tom? Mm-hmm. We're not murderers despite what this, this undertaker thinks. So give it to Luca Brazzi because I don't want the family's hands on this. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, he, Don Vito understands that this is my role and this is the life that I've carved out for myself. And he tells this undertaker as much, look, you never wanted to be indebted to me. And that's why you've never come to me. But in so doing, you also never had me over for a cup of coffee. Yeah. There's a little bit of, and he's the godfather to Sonny, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm surprised it's not Clemenza, but, because Clemens is the one in the second film that steals the rug that we see Sonny crawl in, but mm-hmm. whatever, we get ahead of ourselves. Regardless. Been around for a long time, yeah. In Sicilian, in Sicilian tradition, that's a really important role, the godfather. As titled in the film, obviously it's important. But nonetheless, you haven't needed me, and I understand why, because you needing me means that I'm probably going to call upon you someday, and that might be far more than you're willing to bite off. Mm-hmm. But you still don't get to come in here and disrespect me with, let me pay you, let me this. Like, do you understand how far above you I am, little man? Mm-hmm. For you to come in here and say that you can buy me out is the most insulting thing. I don't want your money. I want your loyalty. Yeah, and your respect. And, and I that, think, he, and he gets it. He, well, and he pays him back, right? Because that's who fixes Sonny. Yep. Uh, man, you leave that scene. And you're already on pins and needles at what should be a very serene and happy moment. But this, this 30, the 33 minutes is when Salazzo, um, the Salazzo character is introduced via dialogue mm-hmm. at the round table discussion. Yeah. I love the way all of the characters in this are introduced. Oh yeah. Connie is the princess. Um, <clears throat> mom who's important and, and the, the matriarch of the family, obviously, but kind of put off to the side to keep her safe. Mm-hmm. The role of Tom Hagen as the advisor to Don Vito, the wisdom of Don Vito. And then you get the introduction of Michael, who's not going to be the same at the end. Mm-hmm. Michael shows up, and what's he wearing to the wedding? His uh, military Ar- outfit. Army fatigues. Yep. Not in well, any... Not, not fatigues, <clears throat> it's like his uh, his regalia. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, not fatigues. Yeah. Nothing like the Cosa Nostra Armani suits that we see everybody else in. Mm-hmm clearly the fish out of water it's they do such a good job of setting up who these people are with very little or the world with very little dialogue there there's a few moments here where you know the fbi is or the press are taking photos of the license plates outside so you kind of know wow these they're up to some bad stuff if they have that much heat on their tails at, at this wedding right uh and then the one uh, uh don whose name's escaping me it's not Br- Br- brazzini is it brazzini mm-hmm. uh they take a picture of him and he just points to a guy and he's like, get him. And then they just destroyed the negative. Like the, these people don't want their picture taken, the power they have to just destroy evidence, like left, right and center. And yet the establishment of the, of the family, Sonny as the hothead. I mean, we see him in this, he just smashes this guy's camera, throws him a few bucks and get the hell out of, off the property. After he spits on the feds ID spits. I talk about disrespectful. Oh, man. Sonny's intense. I mean, dude, Sonny's at an 11 this entire movie. Mm-hmm. Like, he just never gets off that ledge. And I, that's why I really like his character is just, like, how unhinged is. And it's his downfall, right? Yep. Is that's going to be his undoing. Uh, yeah, Tom Hagen, kind of the 
almost like a cousin. I mean, so Sonny found him on the streets. You know, I would love to see that scene. That's actually not in part two. Yeah. Them finding him and then taking them in as a kind of like an adopted son. Yeah, that would have been great. Good, yeah. A good little scene to show. And then you have Fredo, and Fredo comes in pretty drunk, right? Uh, and just like, oh, hi, hi. This is my brother, Mike. <laughs> and just like, you're, you're like, oh, Fredo's got some issues, right? But the point of view is Michael, is if he's kind of almost fish out of water with his own family, right? He's, by choice. Yeah, by choice. And they've kind of, not I don't want to say fully disowned him, but kind of looked down on him, I think, a little bit mm-hmm. for him choosing to drop out of college to enlist in the war. Yeah. Uh, has been, it's kind of stuck the family a little raw, I think. So yeah. his kind of uh, demeanor of like, I that's my family, Kay, it's not me, is so interesting to me because it makes his story arc that much better and that's going to continue on to next week i gotta tell you this just uh, a hot take maybe you'll agree with me michael corleone's story arc in this series i'm not going to include part three yet until i watch it again but maybe the best thing in fictional media books television film it's remarkable what they're going to do with this character i will go with you on that uh, I would say concept and execution wise, it's the best. I would say concept. The other rival might be Anakin Skywalker. Mm, yeah. yeah uh, concept. Exec- <laughs> execution wise though. No, sure. Uh, but yeah, concept and execution wise, it's, it's spot on. Yeah, he, 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 he shows up and it's almost like, is Michael going to come to this wedding or not? And he does show up and his slow indoctrination into this family and wanting to take more of a stake and a claim into their business. And then by the end, uh, it's just it's it's it brings a smile to my face because it's such good writing. That's Puzo's novel, but then that's him and Coppola able to make that come to life on screen. And most of it is it's Pacino, right? Yeah, yeah. The Fredo character, I timed this. I finished. I started last night. I finished this this morning because okay. I wanted to be super fresh. Mm-hmm. And I did watch this again, having seen this movie a hundred times. I did go watch it again. Okay. <clears throat> Take a stab. Up until the moment we get to Vegas and meet Mo Green. How many appearances John Cazale has in the film prior to that? That's two hours and 11 minutes is when we get to Vegas. This is truly mind-boggling. It's, I think it's low, four or five. It's four. Yeah. It's the scene you just mentioned, the drunk scene when, oh, yep. Fumbling the gun. The, when Vito gets shot and he sits there and cries like a baby. When Sonny tells Vito after the shooting, Fredo's going to go to Vegas and learn. The casino business. And then... <laughs> Almost immediately after that, it's the scene when Fredo's sitting bedside by dad and dad just totally dismisses him like he doesn't even care because he's still worried about Michael. Yeah. What I told you, there's certain things that stick out each time you watch the film. This was one of them for me. Yeah. Fredo is presented in the film as a character that is sort of disregarded. Um, if we're going to use the feudal metaphor that is the basis for... Mm. Casa Nostra stateside. So ripped from the Renaissance or the high middle ages and the Lords and the ladies and the estates and, you know, what you can do for the kingdom as far as territory and the Knights being essentially the foot soldiers and the, uh, the capos being the nobles that have given the key, given, given the keys to the kingdom, the same way the capos were given the keys to the neighborhood mm-hmm. underneath the Don's territory. It's set up, historically as about as accurate as you can get it. The Luca Brazzi's are the Knights. And then the squires would be those that are like the, the, the Carlos like learning how to become a Knight. And then, cause when you're made in Cosa Nostra, that means you're knighted real quick with Carlo. Uh, I noticed this too. They've already taken a stance on Carlo. Mm-hmm. 
that give him a living, but don't let him into the family business. Exactly. And so they've already squared up this guy and they're like, he's shady, right? Yeah. And even at this wedding back to, yeah, he's very shady Mm -hmm. (laughs) boy. And how at this wedding, the tributes that they pay to Connie, which are large cast donations Mm -hmm. are the same donations you had to make annually to the King from the capos or the Knights or the nobles Mm -hmm in order to stay under the protection. So it's set up historically with a very strong backbone with a system, Jesse, that honestly was broken. And thus that's why it didn't stick around. Mm -hmm. Now, as, as Fredo shows up back to the point to him, everything's kind of a good time. And if we're going to use the feudal metaphor, I wouldn't say he's a squire. He's almost in the first two hours of this film mm. kind of the jester no, I was kind just, of the jackass yeah yeah because he's like when he shows up and we see him reintroducing michael to k yeah is it k or kate k k a y k a y yeah reintroducing michael to k after michael has just introduced freighter you you get it like but it's done in such a simple sweet way mm-hmm. and that's what Connie connie's going to argue later in number two that's why you need to save his neck. Yeah. But man, it was shocking to me because I have one more point on this and I'll give the, the mic back to you. Sorry, I'm dominating. Oh, no, you're good. Fredo is the most important character in the second film. Yeah. He's barely in this one involved mm-hmm. in this first film. And what I will also say is it doesn't take a genius to recognize the slate of talent. Mm-hmm that is gathered to make this movie. I, in my opinion, the greatest selection of pure talent that's ever been assembled for a film. And and actors that this is kind of their big break, right? I mean, this is the one that like blew them all up. I mean, even from like Abe Vigoda as, as Tessio, Mm -hmm. that's a really good actor. Yeah. The talent in this film, I, I don't know how many Oscars they have between them including nominations, it's probably well over 20. Oh, yeah, 25 right? maybe, 30. Because Diane Keaton has a, doesn't she have a couple nominations and a mm-hmm. win for Annie Hall? Yeah. Robert she, Duvall, I was looking at his little. Three, I think, right? He has one win and like nine nominations. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, if James Kahn is maybe the most weak performer overall. I still think he's pretty good in this Pretty movie. damn good. Yeah, yeah. And what I'm, the point I'm making here is, I think you and I probably can have a pretty robust argument with just about anybody swinging the praises of John Cazale. Mm-hmm. And he's barely showcased in this film at all. He'll get his moment next week. And that's what I'm saying, that this movie's so well-crafted and so well-cast mm-hmm. that John Cazale, who is a master mm-hmm. at his craft, isn't even needed in this film. Yeah. We're going to save him for, for what's coming next. But back to this, gosh, we're... 40 minutes in and it's just the opening bit that I knew I knew the wedding scene was gonna take a while it's a great introduction to characters Mm -hmm. you want to introduce your characters in an environment so the audience can understand what they do and who they are man this is perfect and Sonny banging out the the bridesmaid upstairs I mean that's 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 gonna come back later too and Uh, you did you have you ever noticed um Tom's Reaction when he walks away from the door after he hears Sonny? Uh, it's Sonny being Sonny, right? Smiling. Yeah. Uh, it's Sonny being Sonny. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So they get each other. I I, I kind of wanted to look up what's been written about this wedding scene 
but I stopped myself because I kind of wanted to come in fresh with my own ideas about kind of what it was. But this kind of just looks like a good time, right? This I would like to go to this wedding. The dancing, the food, I bet, is amazing. Dude, Clemenza is drinking sangria from the pitcher. Yeah. <laughs> isn't, Jesse, isn't that the whole crux of the Corleone? Don't you want to be part of that oh, family? Oh, gosh. Every meal just looks so delicious. And I'll talk about my maybe my favorite scene a little bit later with Clemenza and the red sauce. But... Everything just that that vibe, the family homeliness when they're singing, when Mama Corleone is up, and then they bring that other guy, and I think he's talking about his penis because he's going like left and right. Sure, yeah. <laughs> There's just something about like all all of that. The Johnny Fontaine coming and everyone swooning over him, like the, everything that going on in this at this stage is. It feels homely. It feels comfortable. There's like a cozy feeling about this this family. And I think that's important. You want to feel comforted when they're on screen together. And mm-hmm. again, like you, like you set up, they set up everything so well with the, with the characters. And so that was, what was appealing to me about this film. Mm-hmm. The first couple times I watched it yeah. is the camaraderie and the family mm-hmm. and the family extended. It doesn't necessarily mean blood through the veins, Corleone blood, but I mean, mafia also family <clears throat> extended. It's what makes the rest of the film you're kind of on the edge of your seat because you want to see how the rest of this is going to play out when things go from bad to worse to (laughs) even worse later. Yeah. Because dinner on Sunday night is so good because birthdays and gatherings, which are a plenty because there's a million nephews and it's just another excuse to get together are so good. It almost in a viewer of a fictitious event that I really don't want to be part of because I don't want to have to be a hitman. It almost balances the books in my mind of the characters by paying off the sins because the family camaraderie, when they're not in the act of doing or perpetuating some violence or some criminal acts on society, is so glorious. The crux is this, Jesse. Mm -hmm. If you are, and it's part of what happens to Tessio later in the film when he goes the way he goes, the crux is if you're a capo and you are essentially neighborhood overseer, street corner X to street corner Y, four acre or four miles, four square miles of footage territory overseer. You are probably carving out a reasonable, and I want to emphasize reasonable life for yourself, Mm -hmm. but it's not the same life that the Don or the Don's family has. And the only way you get there. Oh, Clemenza's and like some Chantate. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The only way you get there is by starting your own family. And that means you have to go through a turf war and all of the things that we see Vito do in the second film. Mm -hmm. That's where you sort of have to hedge your bets on, I love the family, and they kind of take care of me as long as there's a gathering. But the rest of the time there's not a gathering, I'm sort of just above the poverty line. Yeah. Do you ever read, can I say one more thing and then I'll get back to you? Yeah. Have you ever read Freakonomics? Uh Uh-uh. I'll bring it next week and let you read it. There's an interesting chapter in that book that's called Why Do Drug Dealers Live With Their Moms? Mm. One of the economists went undercover and got in and came in and like told the drug dealer, I want to do an economic study on you. And the guy greenlit it. And he spent some time looking at the structure of the drug drug cartel. Mm -hmm. And this was like heroin on the street corner drug cartel, kind of like what he found was the idea that's perpetuated in films, which are all these drug dealers making absolute killing is actually bullshit. Yeah. The guy on the street corner slinging the rock or the black tar or mm-hmm. whatever is making nothing. Yeah. Is making nothing. 
And when you compare that, because that's also what is, shows up in this movie, um, the only way to get ahead would be A, either do some terrible violent act for the cartel leader, and then you start to kind of climb, 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 or go behind the cartel's leader through some other rival gang in order to move the way up the ladder that way. And then per ability of ascension in the workforce and the payoff for it, it was by data the worst job you could possibly have with upward mobility and pay, <laughs> even worse than like lumberjack, which is the most dangerous job there is. Sure, yeah. The worst job there is is street corner rock dealer. Yeah. Okay, I think that's in play here in this film. And mm -hmm. maybe it's in play for me because I'm familiar with that story now. Yeah. Clemenza has whatever life he has, but Polly and the people, his underlings, they're gonna turn, they're gonna turn on you because yeah. some other guy is gonna come along and say, I can give you better. Yeah, that's what this whole movie is. That's the whole thing. That's everyone just like, uh, we'll get Carlo this way and we'll get this and this and so as much as, and, and you brought it up too, Jesse, mm -hmm. as much as Carlo gets a living but doesn't get a priest of the family business, I mean, that would be your only way is hopefully you carve out a decent enough living to where you can have a nice place. But if you want to climb up the ladder in the family and you're not blood, probably not going to happen because look at Clemenza and Tessio. Yeah. They have been by but, Vito's side the whole time. Yeah, and they've that. stalled out at like essentially feudal noble. Yeah, good. Guard guards to the the sons, right? Kinda, yeah. A little. Second fiddle to even Fredo, which yeah. would be like fourth fiddle. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's all the decision. I mean, like again, all the stuff on loyalty and respect. I mean, you set your foundation of how you want to run your empire, but it's also your their undoing at the same time. Them spiting Carlo, he starts to listen to the other families, right? And then that's later what ends up getting Santino, Sonny, killed. And here with this instance, uh, a little bit later. But we got to talk about a big moment first because I, I really liked this because it almost has nothing to do with the rest of the movie, which is Johnny Fontaine's crying, whimpering about wanting to be in this film that's essentially like his life biography. So Tom Hagen, the night of the wedding, he doesn't even get to party that night. It flies out to L.A. to go meet with the, this heavy producer to say you give yeah give Johnny Fontaine that part or else you know the Don's gonna you know make things bad for you and he's like I ain't gonna be pressured by no Don um, but go check him out see see if he's legit and they invite him over to dinner and it was that Earl Flynn or Douglas Fairbanks house like it's such a lavish estate mm -hmm. it's one of those guys mm -hmm. um, and he kind of I thought that maybe I didn't pay attention enough to this but this producer brings up a good point like your Johnny Fontaine ruined someone that I was grooming and she had a voice like an angel and I was going to take her places and she was a great lady she was a great lady and I've had everything from here to there to there and your guy came in and messed up her head and got her and essentially like uh ruined her right and ruined that uh prodigy of mine so I ain't going to give Johnny Fontaine shit and if anything I'll run him his ass right out of town and Tom doesn't even need to, like, have a comeback, a snappy one-liner. The Don doesn't like bad news. And then so, in the middle of that, you know, we meet his prized horse possession. He spent, man, $600,000 on this horse? I caught the number? Jesus Christ. And he's not even going to race it. He's stud, putting him out to stud. stud. Yeah. This is thing he loves more than anything, more than making movies. And what's the comeback is, yeah, we're going to give you the thing you love the most, and we're going to put it in the bed with you. I, iconic moment. And th th this 
10 minutes of this part of the film has nothing to do with the rest of the movie, but I think it shows the reach and the power and the influence that the Corleones have. If they can, if you kick Tom Hagen out of your house and then asleep, they somehow not only sneak back into the estate, but then sneak into the locked quarters where you keep your prized possession, behead it, then creep upstairs and put it into your bed without you waking. Boy, here's the truth. You cross them, they're going to get you because look what just happened. Yeah. This guy has a horse head put (laughs) in his bed and that's kind of the one of the easier pieces on this whole thing, the murder of the horse and the sneaking on the estate seemed like that'd be far more difficult. I got I got to tell you, there's a, there's a game. They made a Godfather video game for PlayStation two. And you kind of play as like an original character. Who's like working with the family. So you get to play out the film's events. You get to do the horse mission. Oh. You get to like sneak on the estate, get the horse. Cut set off, and then you have to sneak it upstairs. It's like a stealth mission to get it in the bed. It's kind of fun. Like it's looking at the film from like a different perspective. They had a couple that they Godfather I tried that mafia game too. I yeah. Oh, the to... mafia game. Yeah. That's actually pretty good. Is it um, real horse head by the way? Uh, what? Yeah. Uh, it was a horse that was going to be put out to uh, glue. Factor. You no, know, it was the, the, it was it was going to be, be killed because I think it had some sort of disease or something. So they got the production got wind of it. Was like, yeah, let's, let's use that head. Holy shit! Yeah, really? it's kind of horrific, right? Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I guess it lends itself to the verisimilitude of the scene, but the, there's a just the cra- the crazy production of this film, right? It, it never ceases to surprise you. And what's awesome about that though is when that's done, then the movie actually starts. Mm-hmm. Then we get to. So lots of the inciting incident, I guess, if you will, which yeah, is thirty-five minutes in yeah, the movie. Yeah, really. The pitch from Solazzo to start dealing heroin. Yeah, drugs. And so, what is this? Forty-five, thirty-three minutes. No, no, is I, think, when... I think it's nineteen forty-six. Oh, sorry. And yeah, so the Corleone family's making their money on racketeering and gambling, Women. and yeah, and yeah, prostitution. Don Vito doesn't want to get into drugs because the second we get into drugs, the police and the politician power we have, they look so down on that industry. Mm-hmm. We'll lose all of that. So it's a power move, right? So he's like, we're going to stay out of it, even though Tom and Sonny both say there's a lot of money in white powder. Exactly. So we should maybe hear him and see what he has to say. And so Don Vito, in the most polite rejection you can possibly give someone, we're not going to go into business with you, Mr. Salazzo. And if you want to go in with the other families, that's your business, but we're not going to get into that. And, and I wish you luck as long as your business doesn't conflict with my business. Yeah. Stay off my street corner, motherfucker. And it's kind of a mistake, right? I mean, I think Vito, Don Vito is right. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I really think is the delineating factor between him and Michael. Oh, there yeah. seems to be a line that Don Vito won't cross. Yeah. Michael, in a much more calm way compared to Sonny, will cross any line. Sonny will cross any line just because it's, it's Tuesday. But Don Vito has a place that he'll go up to but not past it. And for him, as you said, in a very respectful yeah. denial to a drug dealer, decides that's going a little too far. And his theory I, sounds right. Mm-hmm. The cops are going to run and we're going to find that that's not right. Cause Sterling Hayden is the biggest sleazeball cop that ever walked the face of the earth. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a pretty good setup, but their downfall as well. Cause immediately right into this, uh, they kidnapped Tom Hagen. Uh, 
Luca Brazzi is kind of like the heavy of the the Corleone family. And I love at the wedding, he's practicing like what he's going to ask mm-hmm. at the wedding. And he, he practices it and then goes and does it. And he totally screws it up. Like yeah. it's like all messed up. But he's a, he's a little slow, but like he's a big guy can probably just take down just about anybody. And he goes and he's like, go spy on them. Say you're unhappy with us just so you can kind of get a wind on what they're planning. And man, it's a setup. I mean, they're they're ready for Luca, and they take him down. Dude, ready for that guy's eyes to bulge out of his head yep. when they choke him out, and everything's in play here. So I guess boldly the 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 the, the Brazzini family, Tatalia, Tatalia family, is like we're taking the Don off the table, and in this fruit market. So okay, so they do all their meetings in the Genco olive oil building that he set up back in 1920, yeah. right? Here in Little Italy, uh, in New York City, it's the same neighborhood. And we're going to see that next week. I mean, it's still an Italian market. He goes to probably get fruit every day, right? Every day, yeah. And these guys come up and they just they just ambush him. You know, a lot's been written about what oranges mean in this film. But I think more importantly, and I, I don't think I'd ever heard this in the dialogue track before. When he's running back to the car, he yells, Fredo! I heard that Fredo! for the first time, too. Yeah. Yeah, this, yeah. I'd never heard that. Yeah, I thought that was like him pleading for him to help him. Yeah. And what does Fredo do is classic Fredo. I mean, just can't eat. Like, it's like Kate Capshaw on Temple of Doom can't hold the gun. Yeah. And they got, man, they got, just, he should be dead. They, they, they like 10 bullets into, into Marlon Brando here. But then Fredo weeping by his father. I mean, you just see the sad. You just see how much his sons love their father, right? Mm-hmm. They think the world of him. And then, like, it, when it's all looks so hopeless, it's like, what's going to happen now? Well, it's someone else's turn to kind of run the business well. Don Vito's <laughs> induced coma for a long portion of this film. Mm-hmm. Marlon Brando wins Best Actor, but he's kind of barely in the movie. <laughs> it's fair. Yeah. But yeah. when he is, man, he's electric. I mean, that voice, the makeup, the Dick Smith classic makeup artist that they did to him, and they they made cotton him, in his mouth. They made him look good. Yeah, the the, the cotton talking with his facial gestures and everything. I particularly really love the scene of him playing with um, Michael's son in the orange mm-hmm. orchard. Yeah, and when he dies, like uh, there's something very endearing about that whole sequence. Mm-hmm. And I. I haven't got there yet in the offer, and I haven't read too much, but, man, Marlon Brando was probably a big pain in the ass making this movie. He probably refused to learn his lines. I think I did see cue cards in some production photos. But, man, that guy would go method when it was time to say action. He would just get it. It was just something something weird about that guy. Whatever that character looked like when they wrote it, Mm screenplay-wise, I have a hard time buying that it showed up looking like what it looked like there. Sure. We'd seen Don's before. We think of the Edward G. Robinson, hot-headed, mm-hmm. um, you know, that kind of overplayed. This is a much more aged, subtle, less violent, and more intelligent. Um, you know, Jimmy Cagney, this is not Jimmy Cagney. And that's Brando. Yeah. Whether that's Method and he just caught lightning in a bottle or got into it, the guy for all of the criticisms that can be levied against him. And there are plenty (laughs) when he decided he wanted to do something. It was good. He was good. Yeah. He's really good in the wild one too. Yeah. He's really good in apocalypse now. And that's a weird version of him also. Yeah. I mean, he's good. Like, like when he shows up at apocalypse and didn't read the script and he's like a hundred pounds overweight, it's just like, Oh my God. What? Like you, you feel for Francis, like with working with him and he's just like, 
the what e- happened? Yeah, what happened? The egos and, and everything. But here, everything just seems to be cooking really well, and I, I'm all here for it. But like I said, we have a new Don in charge. Welcome. You're consigliere. And what do we do if the old man dies? God forbid. If we lose the old man, we lose our political contacts and half our strength. The other New York families might wind up supporting Solazzo just to avoid a long, destructive war. This is almost 1946. Nobody wants bloodshed in If your father dies, you make the deal, Sonny. You know, that's easy for you to say, Tommy's not your father. I was as much a son to him as you or Mike. What is it? Hey, Paulie, I thought I told you to stay put. Well, the guy at the gates, they, they said they got a package. Yeah? Oh, hey, Tess, you go see what it is. <coughs> you want me to hang around? Yeah, hang around. You all right? Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah? <coughs> Some food and an ice box. You hungry or anything? No, it's all right. Thanks. How about a drink? Have a little brandy. That's good to sweat yeah. it out. Huh? All right, sure. Go ahead, babe. That might be a good idea. Yeah, right. I want you to take care of that son of a bitch right away. Paul, he sold out the old man, that struts. I don't want to see him again. Make that first thing on your list, understand? Understood. Sonny's ready to move, right? He's like, someone set up Pop. It was this guy who was supposed to be the driver, not Fredo that day. Called he's in, right, and he's right. Called in sick, and he, he like he wants to move. I mean, retaliation is like his game. He mm-hmm. wants to like hit the families right now, and Tom's like, we need to chill. Like, if we do that, like we're going to stall and start an all-out war, and then it's going to be a whole lot worse than we, we could make it here. And if the and if pops dies, like we need to cut a deal with these families uh, for our own protection. Mm-hmm. And then there's little Michael there in the in the corner, and he's just like caught wind of the the story while they were shopping, and wants to come home and be supportive to his dad, who he loves, and doesn't really have a lot to do. It's just kind of sitting around, sitting there, kind of waiting for something to do. And then once he finally gets, you know. He goes to see dad and, you know, he, he kind of gets his moment. It's we're, we're slowly making the transition with Michael. But I mentioned my favorite scene of the film. Yeah, I can't talk. Can you say it? Yeah, I'll see you tonight. Hey, Mikey, why don't you tell that nice girl you love her? I love you with all of my heart. If I don't see you again soon, I'm going to die. <laughs> Come over here, kid. Learn something. You never know, you might have to cook for 20 guys someday. You see, you start out with a little bit of oil, and you fry some garlic. Then you throw in some tomatoes, some tomato paste, you fry it, you make sure it doesn't stick. You got it to a boil, you shove in all your sausage and your meatballs. Huh? And a little bit of wine. And a little bit of sugar. And that's my trick. Why don't you cut the crap? I got more important things for you to do. How's Paulie? Oh, Paulie won't see him no more. It took care of Paulie, right? Leave the gun, take the cannoli. But a scene like that, I mean, it's almost a minute long of the red sauce recipe for spaghetti or whatever pasta you're making. And it's the domestication aspect, right? These guys do have to eat. And on top of that, they're committing horrific acts of violence, executing people. Uh, this is what I really like about this movie is just it, it takes time to settle down, relax, set the stage, have a bite to eat, have a glass of wine, and then we're going to really lay all the cards out on the table and see see where they land. 
What do you think of all that? I mean, it's just, they don't make movies like that today. I mean, everything's so fast, quick edits, quick everything, get in, get out, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, visual miasma of effects. Here, man, we're taking a minute to talk about how we make pasta. Exactly. What are we doing? For as much as we don't like the talking heads at dinner table scenes because they get to be pretty boring, the Mm -hmm. one exception to where those work really well is the final meal before we go off to battle. Yeah. And that's usually reserved for sword and sandal sort of epics. But if you're going to go ahead and stick with the feudal metaphor that we were talking about earlier, then that's what this is. As we head off to the mattresses, as we are on the precipice of some gangland war that might take years, that has to happen every five to ten years, you get the feeling that Clemenza knows what that recipe is and why it matters. Because in a, in a sense, there's a possibility that it's your last meal. Yeah. And there is a formality and a regalness in all of our minds around that last meal. We've all played that game. Yeah. Everybody out there has played that game. Yeah. It's your last meal. What do you want? Yeah. It's your last meal, Jesse. What are you having for your last meal? I don't know, probably chicken wings or something. See what I'm saying? Yeah. We've all played that. And because it's rooted in something that is historically accurate with something that we can relate to and something that we always do or often do, which is eat with our families, Getting behind the curtain to see how an Italian dinner is constructed and how much prep and love goes into that creates that camaraderie and the family that we both like. And it averts, I mean, because really that's boring. Like, here's how you make pasta, except it's not. Watching that guy who you can tell has had a few good meals in his day because he's (laughs) about as fat as they come, right? He is a meatball. (laughs) Watching that guy give Michael the instructions on how to do it also holds another purpose. And what we're watching Mm -hmm. is them tailor Michael to take over. Yeah. Handing over of the guard and God damn it. Does it look good? Damn it. Like (laughs) that's, what's so brilliant about that, that scene. Yeah. There's 25 of those in the movie Mm -hmm. that you watch through what are rather inconsequential moments Mm -hmm. that matter shape. Then another one happened in turn and we didn't even talk about it. Yeah. And that's K pleading with Michael to say, I love I you. Love you. Yeah. And that's this is the other thing that I came to on the watch this time. Yeah, I don't think he gives a shit about her. Yeah. And the reason I would say that is I think she shows up as the and one at the wedding kind of early on. But as you watch him grow and, and become more Don-like, the questions and the triviality of her, would you like me more if I was Ingrid Bergman? Yeah, I'd like you a lot more if you were Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> what do you... Yeah. And those are common conversations that I think people would have. Where do you want to go for dinner after the movie? Sure. Do you like my shoes, Jesse? Like the shit that we all talk about with our people is what she's doing. But in his world, there's no time for, would you like me if I more if I was Ingrid Bergman? The answer is you're annoying as hell. So absolutely yes. But secondarily, she is so not cut out for this life. She's a kindergarten teacher. Yeah. Yeah, she doesn't. She wants to know the truth all the time, and he's always given her like a variation on what the truth really is. But something brings him back to her, and it's we call it settling or oh, the ouch. yeah the relationship that's already been established. Something brings Michael back to Kay. Are we gonna? Do you want to do that now, or do you want to get to that when we get to? Yeah, that? we'll say it later. It's about an hour away. Well, but no, no, it's uh, no. I, I want to ask you a couple questions about. Sure. That. Yeah. No, I think that's very fascinating. 
But no, yeah, that is the last meal. This is like Paul Sorvino slicing the garlic so thin yes. it liquefies in prison. It's just, you know, our RAP Paul Sorvino, by the way. Well, and also to that movie that you just referenced, the importance of Henry Hill in that day when he's trying to get all of that stuff organized. Oh my God. The importance of making the making sure the, the, the pasta's right. Don't, don't let the sauce stick to the pan. Right? Don't yeah, yeah me. <laughs> don't yeah, yeah me. So good. That's Henry. my favorite part of that movie, too. So, Maybe yeah. I'm just hungry. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I think that Diane Keaton's character in this movie is really, really well done. And I have always sort of acknowledged how much I dislike her in this and really dislike her in the second film. Yeah. And you know what it is? It's not Diane Keaton. Yeah. It's her version of Shelley Winters, Shelley Winters, Alice trip. Yeah. And in a place in the sun, when Cliff lets her fall over the boat and maybe doesn't save her, the reason Michael doesn't say I love you isn't that he's going to be embarrassed in front of Clemenza. Do you think he's going to be embarrassed? Clemenza's oh. not going to give a shit. Yeah. It's because he doesn't. Yeah. I think, I think she's a front of normalcy and decency for sure, him. And yeah. that is it. Yeah, I think so. Because he loves Apollonia. Yeah. And God bless him, who wouldn't? Yeah. But she meets a tragic end here, but. Oh, yeah. she doesn't oh, live? No. She doesn't survive that? <laughs> oh, damn it. She didn't end up in the third one. We'll get into more into Kay's character in the next film because, man, they have the scene of scenes uh, later in part two, but we'll save that for next week. Yeah. I really like Michael's first stance here with the family, which is he goes to see Pop. He sees him and Vito's crying. He sees Michael, who's got to be his favorite son, right? Sure. The baby of the family. The one he hopes is going to go straight. Yeah, be president one day, maybe? I don't know. Uh, Just Governor Corleone. Like, wants a a better life for him than what this is. Like, I came and immigrated and did the things I did so you could have. I knew Santino would fall into that, and Fredo is Fredo's Fredo. Yeah. But I wanted more for you. But what he does here and with the with Ayamenzo, the baker, uh, having to stand out here as the hitmen drive by... They nearly shit themselves, but I think it's a good test for Michael. And then, dude, then he gets clocked by Sterling Hayden here, and dude has like a bruise for the next hour and a half of this film. Mm-hmm. He's willing to take his punches and wants more to do with the family. And then when we get this next moment here, I think the the next step is complete. It's the, the Mike, the war hero Michael of uh, the the normalcy with Kay, and he goes to have dinner with her uh, before he goes to see Dad, right? And she says, "When am I going to see you again, Michael?" And he's like, "I don't know." It's like. You're not going to see him for another three years, Kay. Like, it's like, this is the last time you're seeing him for a long time. Mm-hmm. But if Clemenza can figure a way to have a weapon planted there for me, then I'll kill them both. <laughs> hey! What are you gonna do? Nice college boy, huh? They wanna get mixed up in the family business? Huh? Now you wanna gun down a police captain? Why, cause he slapped you in the face a little bit? Huh? What do you think, this is the army where you shoot him a mile away? You gotta get up close like this, and bing you blow their brains all over your nice cyber league suit. Come here. You're taking this very personal. Tom, this is business, and this man is taking it very, very personal. Where does it say that you can't kill a cop? Come on, Mikey. Tom, wait a minute, I'm talking about a cop? That's mixed up in drugs. I'm talking about a, a, a dishonest cop, a crooked cop who got mixed up in the rackets and got what was coming to him. That's a terrific story. We have newspaper people on the payroll, don't we, Tom? They might like a story like that. They might. They just might. It's not personal, Sonny. 
It's strictly business. Can, what I'm going to exclude Fredo for just a minute on this. If you take the other three important men in this film, that's Tom, mm-hmm. that's Sonny, and that's Vito. Each one of them has a trait yeah. that makes them a possible Don candidate or something that highlights their success in Cosa Nostra circles. For Tom Hagen, for lack of better purpose or, or verbiage, it's the PR legal piece. Yeah. With Vito, it's anticipation and strategy. And respect. Okay, yeah. and fair. And with, yeah, good. And with Sonny, it's violence sometimes is necessary because justice is only found at the end of a Tommy gun. Yeah. Now, the problem with all three of those is Tom is so caught up in that that he can't see any other way but that. You can make the same case with Vito. He is so... Oh, behind the times, and that's sort of the reason yeah. why he passes on the, yeah. the heroin, yeah. that that ends up being his downfall. And Sonny doesn't see any other way that violence can't solve it. He's That's all he's got. Michael yeah. is the perfect culmination of all of those, plus one more. Strategy on your feet yeah. in the moment. I think he's smarter than all of them, too. He's the most intelligent. And you see it with the two scenes you just gave, Jesse. Yeah. We have to take my father... And we have to move him out of this room because I can see that there's no security here. Mm-hmm. They're coming to kill him. Yeah. But also, a touch of violence. That's why you put your hand in your pocket. A little bit reckless like Sonny, too. I need this Enzo Baker guy to act like one of my <clears throat> my thugs out here. Yeah. Man, in two scenes, that one and then this one, like, look, well, we can pin this on the cop and make it look like he had what was coming to him. Write a story about it. We got people in the media and we can spin it our own way and make it look good for us. Like, no one else is coming up with that. Did Michael just get out of war college? Because his strategy level yeah. is off the chart. And it's good. And it's what's going to make him unbelievably ruthless going forward. And yes. unfortunately, none of these people, are, other than Tom, are really going to be alive to see what he's going to do with that strategizing and that mindset but man he's gonna orchestrate uh montages of hits throughout this series but you see this is the ceilings of it right yeah. him on the spot almost coming up with it it seems like right exactly let me be a part of the family let me have my stake and this is how it can work out good for all of us and they tell him it was like you're not gonna be able to come back you do you kill um this drug guy whatever but you kill a cop you can't come back here for a few years. So we're going to send you to the old country and we'll let you know when you can come back. Mm-hmm. And he probably doesn't want to come back. <laughs> he finds domestication out there, but let's talk about the scene. Let's talk about what they're setting up. I love Clemenza and them setting up this gun behind the toilet box and this meeting here. And, you know, I, oh, I got to ask you this, Matt. So I don't know. Where did you watch the movie? Your DVD Paramount plot. Where did you watch the movie? Uh, I was on demand on direct TV. Okay. Do the Italian scenes in your version have subtitles? No. Okay. I thought something was wrong with my disc, and I was like, where's the subtitles? I'm pretty positive this is intentional. Right. And I think it's so we're not focusing on dialogue, and we're focusing on the environment yep. and body language. Right. And nothing's more evident to that than later when, man, this character who comes in happened to be Italian and then him and Apollonia and you catch the one wind, the, the, the important piece you're supposed to catch in that is Santino. Mm-hmm. And this guy came to tell him that Sonny, Sonny's dead. And that's what matters in the scene. Not all this other stuff that they're talking about, that all that. What do you think about that? I mean, that's risky. I think on Coppola's part, but I think it maybe makes the, the story more authentic in a way. 
Like the, the, the audience is cut out of what's being said, probably important things, but we're focused more on the tension of the scene being displayed to us. Yeah. The, the language puts up a wall that kind of lets you in, but you can't quite get all the way in. And isn't that sort of the metaphor of the Corleone family mm-hmm. anyway? Yeah. So on the outside looking in, you get what they're saying. Secondarily though, Salazzo's pitching Michael on the business arrangement. Michael wants no part of that business arrangement. He is just simply biding his time to trap Salazzo into enough trust that he can get himself to the bathroom. That's all he's doing. What Salazzo's saying, which is some version of payouts in street corner, who gets this blah, blah, blah protection. It doesn't matter because Michael at this point is set on one thing, which is revenge. Yeah. And you and I and the rest of the audience, unless you speak Italian, isn't going to mm-hmm. quite understand that, but you will understand the interior motives of Michael, which is this guy's going to pay. And I think it's brilliant that it's not subtitled. Yeah. I love that we don't get to see exactly almost like what Salazzo has to say. Yeah. Doesn't matter. And it doesn't. And I, 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 maybe I was just confusing myself. I was like, I kind of remember this being subtitled watching it. it. It had been a while since I'd done a full viewing like this, but are you familiar with the uh, Masseria and the Maranzano clans? Mm-mm. In Cosa Nostra? No. So they are the two rival families that in New York City essentially launched the Castellamari War. Okay. Which slar- large portions of this film are based on. Okay. This diner scene is, in fact, taken from that event, much the same way the shootout scene on St. Valentine's Day and Some Like It Hot is taken from the St. Valentine's yeah. Day massacre almost to the letter historically. Sure. Is this. Cool. In this small offside diner. And there's a lot of there's a lot of pieces into who was with what, but there's a lot of names in these two families that you will recognize. Mm-hmm. These are not 1920 style gangsters, but these are gangsters that if you want to take the time and look them up, it's Masseria, M-A-S-S-E-R-A-A. And Maranzano, M-A-R-A-N-Z-A-N-O. Those two factions, you'll get in there and you'll look at them and be like, oh, I recognize a lot of these names because they are mafioso legends. Okay. We're players in this battle of these two families. And this event in this diner is taken from that that sequence in that Castellamari War. That's got to be Puzo, right? I mean, Puzo writing from history and what he Mm -hmm. grew up listening to and being involved with. Like, that's great. Now, what 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 do you think of this? To me, the best acting moment in this film is, so he goes to the bathroom, he gets his gun, comes back, and Salazzo just keeps going, right? He's talking about all this shit, and Sterling Hayden's just eating his meal, and the cameras just focus a, like a slow pull-in on Michael, and it, body language. It's it's him contemplating when, right? He look, I'm going to try and do my best impression of it. He looks left, right, down, down, up, looks at, at Salazzo down up like this, like trying not to like look him directly in the eye and Mm -hmm. just you're wondering, okay, when's he going to do it? When's he going to do it? When's he going to do it? And then he does boom in in the head, boom in the throat, boom in the head. And he's done it. His first act of murder. And just that contemplation moment, it's all Pacino. It's all eyes. When, when's he going to do it? Brilliant. It's, it's, you, you can't, just like replicate something like that. Are you making the case right now that yeah. understated Pacino works? Yeah. Gosh, you should call his agent and tell him that like you can be understated and work sometimes because he's usually not understated. This is a fairly understated Pacino performance. Why it's his best, right? Yeah. I mean, it's in it, the next one, he c- takes it up a little bit from time to time, but even it's still fairly understated. Mm-hmm. Remarkable. 
And so then, yeah, he can't stay. It's off to to Italy. He falls in love with Apollonia. And I love the courting process with her, right? It's He's taken a shine to this girl, but he's got to go ask dad for the hand. Or can I take your daughter out on a date? And then all the family has to follow behind them. The town's behind him 20 paces. Yeah, I love it. He's got to go meet the whole family. And then when they have the wedding, it's a whole big shebang. Like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's very ceremonial. And there's something really tender about the first time they have sex. I mean, it's just like it's he's found happiness away from violence, the war, the mafia, from Kay. Michael's going to stay here the rest of his life. He knows enough Italian to get by, and he'll be willing to. And is this where, this isn't the same town that his dad grew up in, is it? Oh, that's a good question. I might say yes. It kind of looks similar. I would have. I think the Don Tomasino that is given charge of. Michael's protection in that town. Yeah, it's in Corleone. He says, I'm going to Corleone. That's, yes, that it is the same town. He tells Don Tomasino, I'm going to Corleone. Yes, it's the same town. Okay. So I wonder if that Don Tomasino is who Vito left in charge of what he built there before. You mean after he killed Don Ciccio? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it is, but then what kind of a good way for him to like learn his father's roots too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all setting us, and then we do a great montage. We do this kind of like paper like montage to catch, catch us up a few years, and Don finally gets to come home. Where's Michael? It really upsets him. But then we get into all this stuff with Sonny and how he's essentially running the business because of the Don state. And man, it's just all fucked up. Yeah. It's uh, he goes to pick up uh, to he he goes and sees the bridesmaid again. Right, mm-hmm. they're having their afternoon tryst. Goes to pick up Connie, and she's got a shiner. Like, and it's, dude, hell no, you're beating up my sister. Right. And then, he, dude, he gives Carlo the beating of beatings in the street. Like, there's all these, like, bystanders watching. Dude, those kids are scarred for life. They just oh, saw God. this guy beat up this guy with a trash can lid. Yeah. And a bunch of, and he, you touch my sister again, I'm going to kill you. I mean, that's a threat. And it's big for Carlo because he's going to be like... I got to take care of Sonny. I mean, like, this guy's a pain in my ass. Yep. And I got to tell you, the most shocking moment of this entire film for me, when Connie gets the phone call of Carlo's affair, or this girl that he's seeing or whatever, and she says, I made dinner for you. I'm going out tonight. Eat the dinner. And then she just goes and starts, like, thrashing the kitchen. Dude, this scene... And he starts beating her with, she's pregnant too, by the way, mm-hmm. beating her with the belt and they're just smashing shit left and right. You clean it up and this and that. And then it all ends kind of in, in the bathroom and he kicks the door down and we don't see it, but man, I think he gives it to her like really, really bad. Yeah. That was rough. I was, Talia Shire's pretty good in this movie too. And this is Coppola's sister, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to know her more prominently as Adrian Balboa in the Rocky franchise, but I had forgotten I remember this scene, but I I didn't remember how vicious it was. Like, this was kind of hard to watch. Yeah, she says, uh, why don't you bring your whore home for dinner? And, man, it is on. And he says, maybe I will. Now, you clean up this shit that you just messed Spoiled up. guinea brat. Oh, gosh, yeah. And then he, he throws her on the ground. It's like, you're your pregnant wife. Mm-hmm. And then, again, we don't see what happened in the bathroom, but it wasn't good. No. Call to mom and then put Sonny on the phone. And then Sonny's just, he's going to go kill him. So this this is all a play by Carlo. Yeah. I mean, and for him, I guess, not that I'm saying this is right. You know, he gets to kick the shit out of his wife, which is something that happens fairly frequently. Mm. 
And then that's going to incite Sonny to the larger hole, which is we're going to blast the shit out of him on the causeway. Oh, my God. And then this, too. Is this worse than Bonnie and Clyde, the end of Bonnie and Clyde? I think it's... Maybe not. It's. I think it's close. I think there's definitely more squib action in this mm-hmm. sequence. Man, dude, Sonny gets lit up. He doesn't have a prayer. Swiss cheese. But that's... It's You kind of saw it coming, right? That volatile personality yeah. is just not going to play with these guys. I mean, you piss... you. One person you piss off, this is going to happen. You cannot think before you act in anger in this world. Otherwise, you're setting yourself up for an easy target. And the truth is, Sonny makes a mistake when he leaves his um, when he leaves the house because he goes by himself. He doesn't have any of his bodyguards. He decides he's going to go kill Carlo by himself. That has got to be rule number one in the family. You don't do anything by yourself. For protection and also through loyalty, he breaks that rule. And I think it's interesting that of all the angry things that Sonny does, this is the one that finally puts the nail in his coffin. You can be a hothead. You can make poor decisions. But what you can't do is turn your back on your family or go in isolation. And what does he do? Yeah. That, and it's cost him his life. Yeah, acting uh, too too rationally, too quickly. Yeah, he should have taken Clemenza and Tessio and two other cars with him. It was just, we'll go fill Carlo with bullets. How about that? God, poor Sonny. I mean, like, when they close the toll booth and those guys pull the guns on behind him, he tries to, like, maybe make a move, but no chance, right? I mean, if you think about it, the, rule, the movie even sort of sets up those rules earlier. Mm-hmm. When Vito gets blasted at the fruit stand, at least he's not by himself. That means there's someone there yeah. to pick up your bloody broken pieces, even if it's worthless Fredo. Fredo, I guess, in all of his stupidness, can at least grab a phone and dial 911. <laughs> right? So if you take those two events and you compare them, the difference is certainly there's more guns with Sonny, and it's probably a little bit more on the violent side with that much more action. But the big difference is... He's by himself. Yeah. Can't do it. You can't do it. Can't be by yourself. Yeah. Destroyed. I mean, Tom's got to break the news to to the Don, and then they go see uh, the body, and this is where he's paying that favor back. Yeah. I want you to use all your powers and all your skills. I don't want his mother to see him this way. with my boy. Look how they massacred my boy. Yeah, this is a closed casket funeral, people. I mean, it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 it's sad. It was, well, him is looking at the body and just him getting the news. I mean, it's, the, it's why Brando's so good in this role is you really kind of feel the grief, like, what violence has led to up to this point, to the point where he's like, Tom, set up a meeting with these five families. We're stopping this right now. I'll give them whatever they want if we, we got to stop the, the killing. Like, this is too hard on everybody. So it may be my least favorite scene of the film, primarily because I, I don't really care what the other mob people are doing and, and this and that. I, I really care what's going on with the family. But they do go and make a, a play here to, okay, we can get into drugs, and I'll offer up my influence and power for you, um, but we're stopping this shit right now, right? It's kind of the gist of that scene. And it's it's very ceremonial. It's very untouchables, like with uh, Capone and whatnot. 
But kind of what do you think of all that? I mean, it's it's also him stepping down, right? It's the beginning of I'm I'm moving on from this. I always struggle to reconcile if this is his attempt to let bygones be bygones or if this is the larger unveiling of who is really working against the Corleone family. Um, Maybe a little of both. Yeah, I think a little bit of both is in there. Because if they're going to get into drugs, he kind of wants no part of that. So it's a natural transition to Michael. And then with it, maybe the vulnerability that Vito offers will allow one of his rivals to let their guard down so that he can then figure out which of the other rival four families Mm. is trying to undo whatever he's built or jeopardizing his family. I feel like in either case... Vito, waving the white flag, if you will, has the same sort of goal that he's had the whole time, which is you can never be a man unless you are a family man first. Mm -hmm. And this is him certainly looking out for his family, but secondarily for the other families of the Dons involved. And in in doing that, everybody comes out ahead because no one's son is killed. And maybe this... Four to every five to ten year war that they are stuck in the middle of, which seems like multiple years now, finally comes to a stopping point. Sure. Um, what I really do like about it, though, is you do kind of get a quick look at the other families, and two of them don't matter, but Bodzini and Tatalia do. And what I like about that is as you're sitting there trying to figure out who is the snake in the grass, there is a moment where one of Bodzini's man's men whispers in his ear. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in in those kind of meetings, I'm sure there are plenty of whispers that are given from Don Capo to Don, I'm sure, or Consiglieri to Don. But they show the Bodzini one. And Carlo's going to tell you later, like, yeah, if you thought that was off, you were right, because he admits to Michael it was Bodzini. Mm -hmm. Michael's going to come back here, not by his own choice, but because a car bomb intended for him blows his bride away. I mean, it's always like... No, get out of the car. And just, she just goes, she just goes up. It's just, it's just all the, they can't get out of the way of it. Right. I mean, once it starts in this film, it's just like one bad thing after another until, until the end of the movie. And then we just continue that into the next film. The biggest bad thing of all things gives him a moment of peace. Yeah. So he comes back and then again, I'll say it said, okay, let's talk about K. (laughs) So you wanted to save it here. I think he comes back and it's like, you know, it's familiar. I know her. She gets my family to an extent. But I think you're right. I think it's a foot in domestication and a foot in the mob world is what she offers. And I think it allows him at least someone to sire some male offspring. Well, that's what he wants. You know, it's interesting when he comes back to her and picks her up class outside her, her kindergarten class and says, I've been back a year and they start to rekindle. I noticed for the first time too, the same type of courting process that he did with Apollonia mm-hmm. is occurring here, right? Yeah. It's not Apollonia's family. It's his family and black sedans trailing behind them as they walk down the road talking. Mm-hmm. I don't think for a minute he loves her. Yeah. I think he sees her as healthy and civilian enough to probably survive the violent life long enough to give him a couple sons. Yeah until we get to the second movie and we find out about that story. But that's coming later today. We'll see. We'll, we'll, when we watch part two, let's see if we can look for those moments of if they actually do care about each other. There there might be some, but by the end of the film, there is not. 
I don't think she truly cares about him either. Yeah, so it, we'll try and pin her character down a little bit more and kind of what she's in it for might just be the safety net of what this mob's offering her at that point. I'm very curious to see that aspect of part two because there's a lot to remember about part two, but that one is always just kind of like kind of floating out there for me. But getting into the final moments of this of this film here. Also, and, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. When you compare her to Apollonia. Yeah. A, again, a great cast. Mm-hmm. Whatever that woman's name is that plays Apollonia couldn't be any different looking than Diane Keaton than you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Nothing to say negative about Diane Keaton. She's just a woman. Apollonia is this goddess. Yeah. And for him to leave. <laughs> the name of a goddess. Literally, right? <laughs> For him to leave her in this terrible, terrible, tragic explosion, mm-hmm. and then hat in hands, come back to K. Her name's K, like yeah. Apollonia. Yeah. K. Yeah. She gets a letter. Yeah. She doesn't, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Goddess, continent. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, right. Yeah. She's just so. Might I dare say milk toast? <laughs> ordinary milk toast. Sure. Yeah. Either one of those work. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you're right. Nothing against Diane Keaton, but I think they're setting that up. I mean, yeah. they want that juxtaposition of power and empire and domestication. And yeah, the the, the role, again, in the mafiosos, yeah, bear me some sons so this continues. Mm-hmm. And boy, is that going to be an issue <laughs> next week. Yep. Uh, yeah, so Don's semi-retired. He's kind of handing things off to Michael. Uh, Fredo's off in Vegas with Mo Green. They're going to think of, we're not going to do drugs, but we can get in on the casino business. Like out, out, out West, this, this could be very lucrative for us. I, I kind of forgot about this moment too. And now this was kind of sad for me. I mean, if Tom Hagen is this adopted son in this family and he kind of gets shut out a little bit, doesn't he? And it's his demeanor. He's a peacetime. They always say it several times, peacetime conciliary. We need an aggressive uh, attorney, lawyer, right? And it's not you, Tom. It's nothing against you. You've been a fine concierge under Don, but we need something. Who's better than my dad. Yeah, we need something a little bit more. What I love about that, though, later in the second film is Michael's true motives on that are revealed. Mm-hmm. And it's to keep Tom clean mm-hmm. so that he knows that he's not a backstabbing lech like, well, Fredo. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's a that's a bitter pill. Tom has dedicated a life of service to this family. Mm-hmm. And Michael comes along and basically says, Tom, you're out. Which leaves Tom with what job, Jesse? Hanging out with the fam, I guess. I guess so. Just, yeah. And that, see, that's really alarming. Mm-hmm. Once they don't have a job for you anymore, are you becoming Carlo? Yeah. Now, Tom hasn't crossed the line the way Carlo has and tried to kill one of the, the Corleone boys. Mm-hmm. But, man, if you're not important, you're not important. Yeah. And Tom's got to start reconciling, oh, shit, like, they don't need me anymore. Yeah. Not only am I kind of kicked out of the family, but now I don't even have, like, character armor yeah. because I don't even have a job. And this is when Tessio and Clemenza are like, you've always said that if we wanted, we could go start our own families. And Vito's like, "Be, you've been a friend to me, be a friend to Michael and, yeah. like, help him out now. And then that's kind of going to go south too, to an extent as well. But we we get this really great conversation between father and son right here. Yeah. Michael. Oh. I knew that Santana was going to have to go through all this. And Fredo. Well, Fredo was. 
And I never, I never wanted this for you. I worked my whole life. I don't apologize to take care of my family. And I refused to be a fool. Dancing on the string, held by all those big shots. I don't apologize, that's my life, but I thought that... But when it was your time, that... that you would be the one to hold the strings. Senator Corleone. Governor Corleone, something. I'm not a person of wonder. Well... This wasn't enough time, Michael. Wasn't enough time. We'll get there, Pop. We'll get there. Huh. Now listen, whoever comes to you with this Barzini meeting, he's a traitor. Don't forget that. I have two questions I want to ask you, and I, I didn't never thought about this until last night, but when he's talking about being a senator and the governor Corleone and not do you get kind of like a Joe Kennedy, Kennedy family vibes with the Corleones here? And their dynamic and markup is kind of similar. And they've all met tragic ends in the way this family kind of does. But the patriarch Joe was always maybe the most nefarious one of that entire clan, mm-hmm. right? So, wow, Jesse, I, I, no, I hadn't until right now, but let me double down on that for a minute. Yeah. What was the, if you will, slang term given to the Kennedy estate? Camelot. Yeah. A feudal estate mm-hmm. ripped from history into fiction mm-hmm. that played on the same principles that this is playing on with these no- lords and nobles and knights and a, and a king to oversee all of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And I hadn't, but yes, now, of course, I do. Sure. I think that, that's interesting. Uh, uh, I'm sure there's been a book written about that, probably, <laughs> or something, yeah. but. Uh, I just I kind of I kind of picked up on that a little bit, but mm. he he says what I talked about at the beginning the puppet the puppet strings mm-hmm. the one controlling everything but at a higher level, and we can get kind of far removed from this mob business and we have a different reign of power. It's pretty remarkable, and it's just the the transitioning here from Don Vito to Michael, and what next week's going to do so brilliantly is show the humble beginnings of young Don Vito, from orphaned immigrant building his own life, building his own empire on the good nature of just wanting to survive and provide for his family. Juxtaposed with Michael literally driving it into the ground. That's Greek tragedy, man. Like you, you can't come up with a story better than that. It's, it's seeing those side by side is a, a remarkable piece of filmmaking, but we'll save it for next week. Yeah. Uh, this is where Don Vito dies. He's playing with his grandson here in the, orange thing and man that little kid if he's gonna remember that he'll be scarred for life or if he could comprehend what just happened to his grandfather and i think a nice playful moment and that seems like about five minutes long too right coppola really takes his time to set up this family man right playing with not just my sons and this and that but my grandchildren as well and then when he dies i mean it's a big deal i mean everyone comes out to this funeral all the dons i mean they're enough about kind of hating each other, but enough to pay their respects when someone dies. But I don't know if you catch the look on Michael's face here, because I, I'm always looking for body language. And Don uh, Bronzini, when he kind of goes and he gives like a little head nod to Michael, does Michael reciprocate? Does he go therefore like this? And he doesn't. 
No. Michael is cold, steely. He's like looking. He's like, Pop's gone. What do I do next? Yeah. What What's the next move? And it's a couple things. Uh, it's and then Ed, the 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 things revealed to him. Right. The last thing Vito says was, "Whoever sets up that meeting with Brazzini is the traitor." Right. Mm-hmm. Is no one the the only someone that's being kind of shady would set up something like that. And it's Tessio. Is this guy that's been with him since the beginning, since the the Italian street days? If he doesn't acknowledge Bozzini's nod, then it's a poker face because any oh interpretation of friendship might cause whichever rival family to act differently than the natural way that they should. So if you stay cold and keep all of your cards really close to your vest, I forgive no one, I hold no one accountable, etc. I'm just this cold, stoic, steely Don that... Honestly, is sort of unknown to the other Dons as he's just now risen to power. Then I think it's a strategic move, and this is where Michael really, really excels as the Don. Yeah, um, Vito gives him some good advice. Whenever it comes to you at the meeting, that's the traitor. Shockingly, it's Tessio because everybody thought it would have been Clemenza, but Tessio was always smarter. Mm-hmm. Michael, in a way to keep his family afloat at a time when they are at a crossroads that is make or break does I think what any smart strategist should do now doing and saying you should do it are two different things again it's always execution but being quiet and not acknowledging and just sort of statuesque it presents fucking cold on the screen to you and me but there's a strategy or even if it's not strategy per written script page it's fun to dig into the character arc of Michael Corleone and these moments like you're talking about in one of the greatest arcs that's ever been seen in film. These are the little things that flesh it out and make it not two dimensional, but three dimensional. Don't no, no, don't nod. Don't even acknowledge, look at him, but don't you acknowledge it? Mm -hmm. Cause that admits weakness. I think, you know, there's another moment too, when he's in the car on the way to the dinner with uh, Sterling Hayden and uh, Salazzo Mm -hmm. Hayden kind of apologizes for smashing his orbital bone. Yep. And he offers him a hand over the sh- over the um, seat to shake. Mm-hmm. You notice the way he shakes his hand? Yeah. He doesn't give him a handshake. He just kind of grabs it with his right hand. So it's right hand on right hand, which doesn't work as a shake. Yeah. Or actually, it would be you know, right hand on left hand. When we shake hands, is it right to right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right so right. it's he grabs his right hand with his left hand and gives him that upward, down, backwards. Yeah. Shake that yeah. means nothing. Yeah. Because I think in his well, world... Well, it doesn't even turn around to look at him while he does it, too. So And don't you think in a Michael's word, a handshake mm-hmm. means something? Yeah. Right, so if you aren't going to offer it in full fealty, then don't. Mm-hmm. And it's those little moments, I think, that create the character that you painted so early and being so well, and so well he, uh, scripted. He's like two steps ahead. He's thinking All the time. He's thinking about the moves that are going to impact this later. And one's Vegas, and I played that clip last week. So Fredo's out here banging cocktail waitresses two at a time. But uh, yeah, I couldn't get a drink because Fredo's banging cocktail waitresses two at a time. But he wants to buy out Mo Green in this casino business because we can make it more profitable than you could. And he's like, "No, nah, I don't. You don't buy me out. I, I buy, buy you I, out." Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's, is Mo Green just the biggest shyster that we've ever seen? Oh my too? god, it's, he's so hairy too. Oh my god, like when yeah. he's getting his little rub down, and it's just like he's got hair in places that I do not have hair in. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this shyster, yeah, just scumbag and yeah you turned down okay you turned down probably my pretty lucrative offer we're selling our oil business and all our profits and racketeering we're gonna move out here we're gonna start fresh 
going to give you a pretty lucrative deal. No, you're not. I do that to you. Oh, okay, Mo. So we'll remember that. Yep. And then, yeah, we got to put Fredo straight. I was like, Fredo, you're just running around like a crazy person out here. Like, you, you better be careful. Don't make it sides with anyone against the family mm-hmm. again, ever. Mm-hmm. And she kind of doesn't listen to that. But then we get to the the moment, right? Become the title, The Godfather. Don Vito's been Godfather to probably a lot of different people. And that title and the power within the mafia world has its own weight. But now he's been asked to be Godfather to Connie and Carlo's uh, baby. So this is a title, this is an honor, and this is something he's going to do. And he chooses the day of the baptism for the just the wiping of the slate clean, the offing of everybody. Holy shit! <laughs> Michael Francis Rizzi, do you renounce Satan? That's not a montage. That'd be more of a series of shots, right? Yeah. A couple things right here. Sophia Coppola's the baby. Oh, really? Did you know that? I, they needed a newborn, and she had just been born. So they're like, perfect. She could be the baby we're baptizing. Uh, the Catholic Church and t- and the mafia, to me, and the way the media has given it to me, it kind of goes together like PB and J. Yeah. So this series of shots juxtaposed with this Italian Roman Catholic priest and these mob hits is just, it shouldn't go together as well as it does because how juxtaposed good and evil are. Right. But, Oh my God, it's perfect. Right. And the baptismal aspect of Michael's sins and starting with the clean slate of what they're going to do out in Lake Tahoe. What do you kind of think of all that? That That's a lot of heavy shit. <laughs> of baptismal Michael and he decided to do it at this moment. Like, what does that mean? It's the perfect cover, right? Who would assassinate their rivals during their godson's baptismal? Mm -hmm. Except Michael. Mm -hmm. Again, showcasing just how strategic and smart he is. Um, And ruthless. In Sonny's wildest dreams, he could never conjure up this level of violence on the same given day. But Michael when needed, kind of puts Sonny to shame. The difference being it's not so hot-headed, it's more thought out. Mm -hmm. But boy, oh boy, that is a memorable four or five moments there when he is having all of his henchmen, Clemenza included. Joe Spinelli. 
<laughs> just take down one rival after another. Dude, Mo Green gets it in the eye. In the eye oh, on man. the massage table. Yeah, what so, a way to go. So good. But then we're not quite done yet because there's still one outlier, right? Yeah. Carlo. Carlo. I, it's just, it's a powerful four or five minutes yeah. of the sanctity of religion with mob violence. And to me, it's just, it represents a clean slate. It's like, like you may have made this deal with dad, but now I'm in charge Mm -hmm. and we're moving out of here, but you guys fucked us over good. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to set things right in a way that my father would never do in his wildest dreams. Cause he was a man of good faith and loyalty and respect. Michael's kind of, kind of not about those same things. And we're finding it out right now. So unless it's to make sure that none of these people come after him in this new life, he's about to carve out mm-hmm. for himself in the, in the um, Corleone's in, in Vegas. Mm-hmm. It's straight revenge because he doesn't need the corner of whatever street in, in the Bronx anymore to sling women or liquor. He's moving on to where there isn't any rivals other than maybe the Molinari family that's mentioned very briefly in the meeting that Michael takes with Mo Green earlier in the film. Mm -hmm. But mostly he's going into unfettered territory, clear water. Is this just, I'm going to stick it to you guys one more. I kind of think it is. And if it's just revenge, man, that is cold blooded. Yeah. (laughs) Quite. There's, there's two. It's Carlo and, and Tessio, right? Yeah. We got to uh, clear these slates clean too. So Tessio is like, they're like, okay, we're going out to the meeting. We're going to like, oh no, we'll meet you out there. And when Tessio's like, oh God, like they know. Yeah. Tom, is there any negotiation you could do for me? Eh, say's final. Well, that's the it, it for Tessio. Mm-hmm. Regardless of how long he's been in the lives of all these people, right? Yeah. Since the beginning, he's one of like the original three, uh, four of this family. But then Carlos, the big one, right? He's like, he's like, we knew there was a rat with with with, with Santino, and it had to be you. And who was it? It was Bra- Brazzini, right? And you're gonna go out here, and you're not gonna have anything to do with the family. But you just know that's like not what they're gonna do. And man, Colomenza just camera on the dashboard, and he's kicking through the the windshield like this is crazy. I always remember that scene too. I always wondered because it's a bloodless death. Why they just don't murder him in the chair? Because what ends up happening is... Oh, he's, like the house? Yeah, yeah. Kicks in the windshield and scratches up the paint. Just leave him in the house. If you're just going to choke him out, he's not going to bleed. I've never understood why they take him outside, other than it's kind of cinematically a little bit more meaningful. They love to do that, right? Make you think that you're safe, and then... They do. It's, it's kind of not It's the way so they, they, they want to get you comfortable again and kind of alleviate those tensions, and then they sh- they're like they're like, like like a snake. They just strike when you're least expecting them to. Yeah. Yeah. And then we, so we get to our final scene. It's moving day at the Corleone estate here in New York. The, this film actually shot on location in New York and Italy. Mm. Which we don't even do that anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we shoot on a soundstage. Yep. So I think that's pretty remarkable. But moving day, dude, Connie comes in hot. And she's like, Michael, like, I know you killed Carlo. You read about all the shit and you did it on <laughs> He's the God, you're the godson to his father. You let, you glassy cold hearted bastard. Yeah. And just just spun out. Now, Connie's not really ever going to come down from this for about another film. And you can understand why she's so upset at him. But boy, does she come in. And for all of the things that I think we just say, Talia Shire is Adrian and she's Adrian. 
she really does at a couple times show off her acting chops in this. And this is the yeah. second moment. The other mm-hmm. one is when Carlo's beating her and she's actually playing scared really well. Yeah. Boy, this one, she's feel pain, remorse, furious, anger. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So kind of just think of what, what's left of this family. The head of the household is dead. Mm-hmm. The oldest son is dead. So yeah. now you have the, 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 the matriarch of the family who's still around. And then the three si- kind of a non-player in the family working, right? <laughs> Feels like she's not involved in the mob world at all. She's like making sure everyone's well fed, well taken care of, putting a roof over their head. If they need any assistance that way, she'll provide it. And then you have the three siblings. So that going forward, we're going to see how that that really plays out with this with this family. But we got Kay here, and she's like, "Tell me that's not true. You didn't you didn't just kill Carlo, right?" And he's like, "Do not ask me. Do not ask me about my business." And then he comes around. One time, I'll let you ask it. It's the whole thing, this whole relationship and this whole family is kind of built on, and it's he lies straight up to her face. Yeah. He's like, no, I had nothing to do with that. And then how powerful is this last image here? Is her going back to, I don't know, packing up some vase and Clemenza, and then his, I got to remember his right-hand guy's name because he's going to be a, like a very important character. Johnny, no, it's not Johnny Ola. Uh, comes up in the next film. Yeah. Um He's like his like he's like his guy, right? His like yes. main bodyguard. But they're all just there and they're like Don Corleone. So it's not even Michael anymore again, right? Michael's dead. Mm-hmm. It's you're the Don of this family and you're Godfather. And so they pay him kiss him on the the ring and everything and all the, all that respect. And then what do they do? They they shut the door on on Kay, on the wife. Your life is out there. This yeah. in here, you got no part of this. Not for you, right? Right. And the more that she tries to stick her business into that, the more that relationship get, goes on the fritz. I think that's why next week when it happens again, it's so meaningful. Yeah. It's a great ending. It's a great, it's, and it's, it's a fade, it's a fade wipe and then a sound effect. And then the movie's over. Yeah. Yeah. He has taken his seat on the throne in this feudal mafioso world, but at what cost? And then again, just, just to make the whole thing that much better. Think of again, Picture back where Michael started at the beginning of this yeah, thing. Right. War, War hero, hero wanted to start his own life, his own thing, and now he's got thrown into this thing. Sucked back in. Oh, that'll be the line of the third movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> so good. I, I got a couple things for you here. Just some some questions, some anecdotes. Uh I mentioned the real horse head. Okay, for uh role of Sonny, De Niro was originally cast as Sonny Corleone and then kind of got pulled away to another films, but he will make his return to this franchise. Uh, a few other names for Sonny, Warren Beatty and Redford. Those were, those guys were thrown around for every role in yeah. the 70s, right? Yeah. Uh, Ryan O'Neill was kind of thrown around. It's, Khan's perfect for it. Yep. It's that curly hair, man. It's those, dude, those, those like... Square, square shoulders. Those perpendicular shoulders, man. <laughs> and they're so hairy, too. Yeah. Johnny Fontaine, the actor, I'll pull his name up here in a second, but he... They, Coppola wanted a different actor, and the the guy that plays Fontaine in the movie actually had mob ties and went and was like, I I want to be in this much like his character, really. And because the actor that got cast in his stead didn't want to deal with the mob, bowed out, and then that guy got the role. Mm, interesting, crazy. It's just like the, those little anecdotes. Brando was obviously the first choice, but Paramount was like, really? You want to cast Marlon Brando in this thing? Like, that sounds like a disaster. Lawrence Olivier and Ernest Borgnine as potentials for Don. 
I see Borgnine, not Lawrence Olivier, though. Yeah. But again, I don't know if it, I just don't know if it works as well as, uh, as Brando. Borgnine, I see also as a really good Clemenza. I yeah. can see that too. So the Italian Civil Rights League was led by mobster Joseph Colombo. They, they were like, you gotta shut this movie down. Talking about the mafia, you're calling us, uh, what was the term you used? Caso Nostra? Yeah, they're like, you can't use those words in this because it paints us in a bad light. Mm-hmm. Even though we are mobsters, we don't want to hear that. And Coppola's like, oh, dear God. Like, he's like, we don't even use that verbiage in this film. So they had to deal with like an actual kind of mob front while making this movie, which mm-hmm. sounds absurd. Mm-hmm. And eventually they read the script and was like, you know what? This actually isn't entirely derogatory towards like us. Uh, and we sign off on it, but... They, they they sent a hitman to send a message to producer Albert Ruddy, and they, with a shotgun, shut out his, while he was in the car, his, like, uh, rear uh, window, saying, stop this production right now. Wow. Yeah. wonder if there was some cash that made that uh, decision a little easier to make. Yeah, I mean, Paramount had to add to, like, maybe some payouts sure. uh, and buyouts. I mentioned this to you, and this is so strange. The screenplay was written... So Puzo sold, he had 60 pages of like a manuscript and that got optioned before the book was even published. So like in like the movie media world, sometimes people will catch wind of something being written. That's like, we want that before it even hits the public. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they paid him, I think 80,000 and dude, Puzo was like a notorious gambler. So he was like in crazy debt and was just like, my next book needs to be a winner. So he wrote the book. Got his advance for I think eighty thousand, and then an additional hundred thousand to write the script with Coppola, and then back end points. When, when are they giving back end points to the writer? No, spec writers, hell no, never. Right. And he had to have turned a pretty penny, right? Oh, hopefully he didn't lose well, it at the craps table. Yeah, we'll talk about the numbers a little bit later, but this is interesting. Him and Coppola. So once they hired him, and they did. They didn't want Coppola. They actually, Elliot Kazan was like on the short list for really? this film. Yeah. But they thought Coppola, they wanted an Italian American could authentically bring this uh, to the screen. But man, Coppola was in deep with American Zotrope and him and George Lucas kind of went in together on this and he funded, I don't, have you ever seen THX 1138? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, it was a colossal disaster. And I think he owed Warner Brothers like four hundred, six hundred thousand dollars $600,000. So he needed a gig to get out of debt. Again, just that, like, you're funding things, you're in debt, and you're having to, like, mortgage other things to get out of debt. I'll just, that sounds absurd Sheesh. to me. Like, I don't want no part of that. No. You want to know some guys that they, Paramount, Robert Evans, and them wanted for director? Yeah. Sergio Leone was the top choice, mm. but he kind of wanted to do his own thing, which became Once Upon a Time in America. Mm-hmm. Peter Bogdanovich. Really? Yeah. Thought that could be pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. But the film is what it is. It was a huge hit. Uh, I think I like eight or nine million dollar budget. It might be fifteen. Uh, it became the highest grossing film of all time uh, when uh, when it was re- released, and then it was beat by Jaws a few years later. But we haven't done this in a while. I think it's <laughs> yeah. money. Some cha-ching for the Godfather for this movie. This. Paramount did not want to make another mob movie because the last few they had made were total disasters. This little film book that could became this classic film of American cinema. I think that's a really cool thing. Eight Oscar nominations, three wins for picture, screenplay, and 
Nope. Uh, pitcher, screenplay, and actor, Marlon Brando, Brando yeah. which he notoriously didn't show up for. Refused and sent uh, a Comanche woman, it might not be Comanche, but an in, a Native American woman to refuse. Oh, that'd be so crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just it's absurd. So him. Yeah. It's so him as well, right? Yeah, he got into like all, all the Native Americans' rights at the time and didn't like how they were being treated, or just like I'm not accepting the Oscar because of that. That has nothing to. They have nothing to do with each other. Right. Uh, this is, I think, the craziest stat. Pacino, Duvall, and James Conn were all nominated for Best Supporting Actor. None of them won. Right. Joel Gray won for Cabaret, which give me a break. Give Matt. me a break. <laughs> and then it's going to happen again next week. De Niro, Lee Strasberg, and Michael Gattanzo, I think, is his name. All nominated for supporting actor, and De Niro will win. Mm-hmm. When has that ever happened again? Where one film will churn out three nominations for support for one category? Shocker, crazy! And how not one of these guys won? At least Pacino should have won for this film. Maybe James Caan. That's another one that showed up on that list. Was Cabaret? It's on the list. Yeah, it's at high on the list. Like I think top thirty. Get out of here! Um, I just got here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, that's it. Uh, what's your favorite tasting note of The Godfather? Ooh. Uh, I think it might be that, I, I guess it's a patio. The patio scene, the sound you played, where Michael is in the tutelage of his father. And it starts off with remorse about how his dad said, I just didn't have enough time, and then moves to, but here's what you need to know because I couldn't get this done. Uh, it's heartfelt and and like you said earlier, it's tender, but there's also an edge of of trouble that he's forecasting there. And as much as Vito is a family man, there's a lot of regret because he couldn't dig his fa- his family out of that to something that was legitimate. Yeah, that's probably that's just two really really strong performances by actors, and they don't share a lot of scenes together, so that's one of the few. Yeah, good choice. Mine's the baptismal series of shots. Mm-hmm. How could it not be? Yeah, I mean, that's just, it's just the way it's done. It's scored with that like crazy organ music and the violence with religion. It's just, it goes together really well for some reason. Yeah. And yeah, just him just saying, I, yeah, yeah, I renounce Satan. I, I'll live in with no sin. And he's just committing the most heinous sin, right? Mm-hmm. Murder. What's the. Oh my God! Moment. When uh, Michael blasts McCluskey and Salazzo at the diner. Mm. Boy, Sterling Hayden gets it bad when he gets it in the throat. Yeah. To Sterling Hayden's credit, the yeah. gagging. That's what I think it should look like if you get shot in the throat. Boy, that is hard to watch. And then he just leaves the gun and... It falls on the table and the table falls over. Mm-hmm. And it's solid, solid, solid stuff there. Mine's that Connie and Carlo domestic dispute. That's I forgot. I kind of forgot how crazy that scene was. Not only is she just trashing their house, apartment, whatever that is. Man, but when Carlo pulls out that belt, man, he just doesn't stop. And just, just like six or seven months pregnant, man. And just like, you can't do that. And uh, it's it brutal. And then what's not seen, I think, is the most horrific thing. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, that called the sunny next. It's just like, it sets everything in motion for the rest of the film. It's pretty crazy. Uh, who's the master distiller on The Godfather? Brando. Uh, for all of his weird proclivities and where he was in his life and the stories that have followed him post-mortem mm-hmm. uh, didn't matter in this film. Nope. From the cat to the cotton in his mouth to 
the most iconic father figure to date in a film. Uh, and he's really, really, really good in this. The movie's got a lot of potentials. Yeah. I think you could use, you know, lots of answers for this, but goddamn Brando's just so good in this. Yeah. Great performance. You said it was probably the best of his career. Yeah. Yeah. Great choice. Great choice. I got to go Coppola. Yeah. You look at his filmography prior to this film and it's not amazing. It's fairly unmemorable dementia 13 and a few other kind of false starts and misses. And he did fund American Zoetrope, his production company out of that. But man, he slays this thing, all the moving pieces, the ego, the screenplay, all this crazy shit. I just mentioned with the mob and paramount and they don't even want him. They're going to fire him somehow just brings it to the finish line. And it's just this piece of art is what it is like. This in the hands of literally anyone else, it's not the same film. There's just something he he was in sync with it, right? He got it. And yeah. that the offer, the the show, when he gives his pitch to Bob Evans and Ruddy on why he should direct The Godfather, he gets it. He's like, this is a story about immigrants. It's a story about family. It's a story about, you know, it's a Greek tragedy underneath all of it. Like, he understood it probably better than Puzo did, honestly. Mm. So... It's just not the same in someone else's hands. It bogged down. It's a different film if he makes it. It's a different film if someone like Scorsese makes it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think the the orchestrator, the puppeteer above all of it is is him. Yeah. I you can't I you can't direct a film better than this. No, it's spotless. I'll ask myself that again next week when we're in some pretty superior territory again. But mm-hmm. I don't know when the elements are against you. I mean, just he just kept going. And just he, just he formed his own empire in a way, right? Vision and love, and look what happened. Yeah, and they got out of his way long enough to let it happen. Yeah, to that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let them make the movie the way they see it. How are you going to rate and grade Godfather? Rock gut, well, call single barrel or top shelf? Uh, yeah, obviously, top shelf. This is one of the yeah all timers, if not the all timer of all timers. Um, you just listen to two hours of the praises, so I'm not going to go back through all that again. It's it's a perfect film. It's literally a perfect film. Yeah, this is this is mid the easiest top shelf to get, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like top shelf like before the like the, the first five, ten minutes ends. It's just like, ah, this is this is a film. Like mm-hmm. this is something very special. The acting, the directing, the writing, the music, the food, everything we yeah, again talked about for two hours here. How could you go anything lower than top shelf? You just couldn't. And it's become common periodicals or film reviews or whatever to be that cute person or just like that, like different person. That's like shits on the Godfather. And it's like, and it's just like, it's like the movie's not as good as people think it is or this and that. And it's like, it's like those people, you're just, you're fooling yourselves. Mm-hmm. You're just trying to be different. This film's a masterpiece. Right. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> you can make that argument and write a lot of articles. This is not the film to write that article about. Oh, no, no, no. Write it about, you can write it about Kane, write it about Gone with the Wind. Yeah. You can't write it about this one. No. I won't, I won't stand for that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a perfect film. <laughs> yeah. You can write it about Halloween. You can have the same views on Halloween I do, but and just like, I don't know how you just sit and watch The Godfather and just not realize how in what mastery space on all filmmaking levels, acting, writing, editing, uh, music, production design, 
this is something I did pay attention to because there's a, a pretty good aerial shot of it's in New York City. It's close to the, the in the first act. And I was just kind of looking around. I think it's when they're shopping for mattresses. And I was like, let me see how good this production design is. Or no, 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 I take that back. It's when it's when what's his name's in Hollywood. They pull back, and I was like, those cars better be like circa 45. And you bet your ass they all they are. are. Yeah. Everything looks how it needs to look. And it's just everything, every level of filmmaking is on another level. Attention to detail put me in the five boroughs of New York in 1945. It better look like it. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah. Great, great, great choice. To your rating, to, to your this rating, review. To this film. Uh, let's wrap this up with our nightcap. So I thought about other properties that would be trilogy worthy. And then I thought, let's take it to the next level and find something historical or based in actual history that you could build the trilogy out of. So as this is based on the true um, feudal ties, and we talked about the Castle and Murray War and, and the, the history around this that made it um, grounded, uh, I asked you to come up with a historically based trilogy. You want me to go first or do you want to go first? Uh, I'll go, I'll go first. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought this was a great question and kind of got me thinking about the, the wild west and just some of those figures and those personalities that populated, you know, the growing frontier as we're expanding statehood, like all this other crazy stuff's happening as well. But I think a, a trilogy built around uh, Buffalo Bill, Calamity Jane, and Wild Bill Hickok could be pretty interesting. I agree. Uh, so Buffalo Bill, you know, he had his traveling show of just like sideshow antics, and it was almost like a rodeo. It was like a traveling rodeo with like theater elements and acting. It was like whatever the medieval times of jousting and like all that shit was. This was like the Wild West version of it. Mm-hmm. And Altman, Robert Altman made a movie with Paul Newman as Buffalo Bill. I think it's Buffalo Bill and Sitting Bull's Lesson is, I think, what it's called. And so, I mean, that's one movie. But then you learn about Calamity Jane and, like, how that she was this great markswoman. And she had this, like, crazy, like, affair with Wild Bill Hickok. And he was involved in all his crazy shit. It's mob-like, but, like, the Wild West version of that. So... Yeah, that's way past due, isn't it? Yeah, some version of that, I think you could, there's a lot of play there with all those characters kind of intermingling with each other. So would you do story from beginning to end or each of the films be based on one of the three characters? I think you could from do, their POV. You could do either way. Honestly. It'd be kind of fun to see the same event told three different ways through their POV. That could mm. be cool, huh? Mm. I like it. That's good, Jesse. Yeah, I kind of I kind of like that. I, I, I try to think of... Something old school or something. I just, I don't know why I kept thinking Western. I was like, something in the West. A trilogy, Western trilogy built around some people. Sooner or later, we have to do that too. Mm-hmm. Really jump into the the West. Oh, yeah. Good. I like it. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to go back in time to the Renaissance and a family that took 
the beliefs of the Renaissance, mostly through art and architecture, and chose to champion its cause against the tyrannical, the, the tyrannical papacy, and that's the de' Medici's. Uh, you can start with either Lorenzo or Cosimo. It doesn't matter to me. Or you can take it back to the rise of. There is easily enough material for three stories in there. But we're talking about a great, great evil, the tyrannical papacy yeah. and underground caverns in Florence and family drama on legacy and all of the things that you want action and drama to bring together with um, something that matters at stake, bringing the world back to life, the yeah. Renaissance. Yeah. Uh, you know, if that doesn't happen, who knows if we're even sitting here now, I think we probably would be, but yeah, he, he, I mean, that's kind of a big moment. Sure. So yeah, that's what I want. Um, and that's a long spanning period. So uh, you could even make the case, maybe it's better suited for episodic television through four or five seasons, but I think through three movies, if you want to just tackle like one or two, maybe like sure, dad, son, maybe grandson and sort of in a godfather kind of way, look at that lineage. But man, there's a lot of cool things that happen in that. Yeah. Um, Great what choice. What a better place to do it than in Florence. Oh, yeah. Cool, huh? Yeah. It'll have that vibe, right? Yeah. It'll have that, like that old school architecture, the the clothing, just like, yeah. And the violence could just still be just very similar to this film. Right. No, it's pretty great. It's, you know, and it makes me think a lot too of just like, how come people, I don't, I can't think of too many. No one's ever really tried to copy like the the, the character arcs in in this film like to the T and like kind of repurpose it in like a different setting or like a different atmosphere because like this Don Vito Michael transfer of power relationship. I, I can see that in like a, a story about Hollywood, a story mm-hmm. in politics. Mm-hmm. I guess House of Cards kind of did that a little bit, but. Not like this. Not 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 nothing quite like this. And maybe that's just why it makes it so special, right? Yeah, right. Oh, we're gonna double down quite a bit next week. I don't know. We'll okay. We're we'll probably wrap up at like two eleven here here in just a second. Mm-hmm. Next week's gonna be longer. I'm already telling you right now. It's just like we're gonna be pushing maybe close to three. And so I just there's just there's just too much to unpack in this film, and right. we'll need to make a decision. Maybe we just tackle all the prequel stuff first and then we'll get into the second half where we can do it how the film does it it's up to you no no i think let's just stay linear because we get tangential anyway so let's do just linear prequel stuff his rise to power and then we'll get in real time with okay. uh, johnny ola and um hyman roth. roth yeah hyman <laughs> old man's been down in the same heart attack for 50 years yeah lee strasberg man uh yeah yeah i can't wait to talk about this art and i i'm gonna go and try and do some research on this is this the first sequel that had a two in its title Ooh, I don't know. Yeah, because remember, like doing sequels back in the day was like, how dare you? It's it's inferior. It's an inferior film by definition, right? Mm. Uh, I, I'm gonna look because you know, yeah, the Bride of Frankenstein, but that's not like Frankenstein two. Right. I'm gonna look because uh, it, it very well could be. And uh, if anyone else has that answer, please please write into the email or any of the the socials. But I can't wait to talk about this thing. This is this is the Greek tragedy unfoldeth to the 10th power, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The stuff that's about to happen here, the sound is going to be amazing. And I got to tell you this too. I mean, this is Coppola and Puzo. This isn't based on another novel. Now this is Paramount saying we want more. Where do you see this going forward? And Puzo and Coppola together are able to, this is what we see the story going next. Let's tell the story of the origins and then the next chapter. 
whoever's decision that was was the million dollar decision right so good i can't wait Uh, this is gonna be a lot of fun and then honestly the film i'm most looking forward to is actually part three Mm. what's the and this new version that i have yet to see me too uh maybe we'll come around to that one maybe there's maybe there's something there i don't know i've heard a couple things in the last week from actually a couple sports podcasts that i listened to where the third one came up to where they were bailing a little bit of water on it saying you know this compared to the first two but anything would suck compared to the first two. Yeah. This isn't the dog that you all... So I'm, I'm curious to see if we find that that dog can hunt a little bit Revisit too. Revisit that one. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Cheers to you. Cheers to you. Cheers. I'm going to go do uh, Clemenza's uh, red sauce. I'm going to make up a big plate of pasta for uh, a gathering a little bit later. Well, if you're having people over, get the cannoli and leave the gun. Excellent. We'll see you all next week, everybody. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening. To Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. The Godfather is property of Paramount Pictures and Alfran Productions, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.